Hello and welcome to episode 100. Yeah, episode 100. Woo! <laughs> is that appropriate for this kind of podcast? Yeah, today it is. Today it is for sure. That's right. <laughs> of adult music. Yeah. The podcast with music for the mature mind and 100 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah is that appropriate? Almost uh, two years. That'll be coming up in two weeks that we've been doing this. I'm your co-host, Russ, over here, and over there is Mike. Yeah, this is your co-host, Mike, and I want to say something about 100 episodes. I said this at the end of the episode last week, but I'm afraid people didn't get that far, so I want to say <laughs> it right here at the beginning. We'd, we've done 100 episodes now, and we do about six, you know, average six albums yeah. per episode. That's the, the main thing. That means we've listened to 600 albums. Just about, yeah. And what that says to me is I've discovered that you and I, Russ, are not normal people. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> we, well, we belong in a special place, and we're in one, this, this uh, podcasting world. Mm. And uh, I'm quite happy to be here. The, the podcast is growing. We're having, we're having a good beginning to the year 2023. Thank you, listeners, and uh, welcome to all the new listeners, too. Thanks for downloading our podcast. I want to also mention... We were talking about discovery and how hard it is mm. to get this podcast uh, discovered by people. It's really word of mouth and just whatever kind of mentions we can get on other podcasts from friends. Um, but if you listen to this podcast and you know somebody you think who would like it, tell them because they're not going to find it any other way. And it would help us a lot. So please, uh, yeah, please do share the with word a out. Yeah, that yeah. will help us a lot. Yeah. That said, we've got our best month of all time so far, and it's not even over yet. So the most downloads uh, we've had yet. And I can tell there are a lot of new people joining because <laughs> there's been a, a few people who joined and downloaded almost all the episodes. That's, That's uh, amazing. A couple hundred hours <laughs> listening yeah. to uh, things. Of, of people talking yeah. about albums from the past two years. I mean, and these right. are albums that, I mean, those podcasts are always valid because those albums are, you know, they're classical and jazz albums. They're all, you know, music is always... Um, it doesn't classical and jazz doesn't have to be new. No, no, if you it's know, good, you, you, I'm still listening to the music from well, let's not even talk about like 50, 60 years ago, the golden age of jazz, but even like five, 10 years ago, I've still got those records on my uh, yeah, going sure. on even 20 years ago, <laughs> still listening to classical and jazz albums from that era. If you're wondering if your first time here, any new listeners, what are they talking about? Well, we usually, as we said, feature six albums, recent classical and jazz releases on the program. We go through them track by track and sort out what we're listening to, what's going on there. And in the episode description, you can find links for them to Spotify, Apple Music, under the descriptions of the recordings. Also at the top of the description for the podcast, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform from France. Mm -hmm. You can also follow us there on Deezer, get the podcasts and the recordings all in one place. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. And if you can't see the full description or the list for the podcasts on whatever app you listen to, you can always come over to our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's clear and easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. And as Mike suggested, please tell a friend if you've got any musically yes. inclined friends who might be interested. If you take a moment, give us a ranking or write a review wherever you listen to us. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and it helps us grow the audience as well. You can also, and please do, come over and follow us on our Facebook page. We've got a few more people this week following over there. Yeah, I'm happy to see that, really. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the musicians that 
we contact after we talk about their recordings, get pretty interested, and then they follow us there too. And we have some interaction with them, which you can join in and be a part of. You can also see things we post during the week. I put up a lot, tons of jazz releases this week that came out. And, you know, some of them we'll get to on the podcast, but some of them we just won't because we can't talk about everything that comes out that's good. But if you want something new to listen to every day, you can go in there. Mike's got some other interesting musical things. That uh, cello on display, that was a pretty interesting one. Yeah, that was a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. that one. That that bothers me. This, it was about a cello museum exhibit. I mean, why, you know, these there are cellos that were played by famous musicians. And... Cellos should be heard. Now, if you have like this classic cello, like the one, one of the ones pictured is one Pablo Casals played. And what, nobody's going to play it now that Pablo Casals has died? I mean, <laughs> it's got to go into some younger, great cellist's hands. They have a special sound right. to them. And uh, instruments have to be played. The whole idea of a museum for instruments is ridiculous unless the instrument is yeah. actually on the verge of like, you know, crumbling to dust and you want to just preserve right. it that way. You know, that's a different story, but. These instruments need to be played. So anyway, come over on the Facebook page. You can see our handsome faces there and get some updates during the week with new recordings. And if you'd like to contact us directly, any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Be sure to reply. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, we're trying to increase our audience and help some other podcasts uh, sharing like-minded listeners. So if you want some other musical podcast recommendations, we've got a few for you. We've got Tom Gowker and his podcast, Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz blues and R&B interview podcast featuring interviews with well-known musicians. Also, famous interviews in Neon Jazz from Joe Domino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard. Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Abra look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week, play snippets from each version, and discuss the history of the original and the different versions. You'll find links to those podcasts at the end of the episode description, and also if you listen to the end of this podcast episode, I'll put in their little snippets of promos, and you can uh, hear what they're all about there. So if you want more musical information during the week, check those other podcasts out as well. Yeah, just get away from the news because it's all bad. There's <laughs> nothing good. M- yeah. Music is always good. <laughs> you know? That's for sure. It's, a, it's always a happy thing for me anyway. So anyway, I'm feeling very festive tonight. We, we've actually talked about how in Japan there's um our favorite uh, bourbon, Knob Creek, mm. uh, single bower re- reserve, which apparently is only sold in Japan or was. It seems to be disappearing at least for a while. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen to it. So I managed to secure myself a bottle here oh. and I'm, I opened it tonight because I was afraid... I might drink it all before now, but let's uh, let's give that a. Oh, there open. you go. Oh, there you go. Pop the cork. I've got three unopened bottles, but I'm just gonna sit on them now. So I'm pour myself a little glass there, slumming it with some wild turkey in the meantime. Wild well, turkey but, for the hundredth episode. That's not right. I do yeah. like wild turkey though. Yeah, it's not the bad. eight year is good. And as we have a little celebratory uh, toast and drink here, we wondered what would be good for one hundred. So we went with trumpet because yeah, well. Uh, Trumpet yeah. uh, fanfares, right? Because we, we deserve a fanfare for getting to episode 100, so why so. not? Also, it's Russ's instrument. It's my instrument, my original His instrument. His main yeah. instrument. He's main got a few one, instruments. Yeah. 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 But trumpet was the big one. And yeah, so I'm going to have some uh, fun memories of things that I played as a youngster when we go through the recordings tonight. Yeah. 
on this episode. What do you mean, like jazz or um, yeah, no, in classical, classical ones? Because yeah. uh, you had to actually learn some of these classical works. Yeah, required uh, required learning a couple of these yeah. big pieces here. Yeah, and I think yeah, that's going to be the first um, album that we talk yeah. about. Trumpet concertos by Lucienne Renaudin Valley, who's a French, a very young uh, French trumpeter. She's uh, accompanied by the Luzerner Symphony Orchestra, that's Lucerne in Switzerland, conducted by the German conductor, Michael Sanderling. And this is on Warner Classics, like a really big label. Warner Classics, by the way, remember they used to have EMI and DECA yeah. and uh, RCA? Well, Warner Classics has absorbed, not all those, I'm, I'm, I don't know, it's absorbed... Um, I think EMI and Philips are now under Warner, and they, Warner okay. Classics, they also have the Erato label on them. They're just this behemoth of... Um, not just yeah. classical music either, like all other kinds. Wow. Anyway, they're on that label. Okay, now, that's all fine. You get great distribution when you're on a big label like this. But uh, they'll try to um, promote the artist in really odd ways, I think. You know, <laughs> when you have a bunch of people under the uh, in management saying, oh, how can we promote this artist? They, they usually come up with these really embarrassing right. ideas. Hey, let's talk about a little bit about Lucien Renaudin Valley. We heard her album Piazzolla Stories, which is a really interesting choice for someone mm. as young as her. She's in her early 20s. In fact, she celebrated her 24th birthday mm. on January 28th. And we're recording here in Japan on January 29th. So that was yesterday. For, okay. you know, she's now 24 years old. Happy birthday, Lucien. I hope you hear this podcast because we're going to say some really nice things about this album, I think. At least I am. I'm gonna a few <laughs> a few things to uh, yeah, me too. To but you know, it's okay. One. No, she but was good. Actually, the other common point is we've got a lot of young trumpeters uh, yeah. featured this week in general and in the jazz section too. So yeah, they're all pretty interesting too. This so the Piazzolla. If you want to hear that one, that was on episode eight a long time ago. Mm. Uh, Piazzolla times two in a European jazz review. That was April fifth, twenty twenty one. Ah, how young we were. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's nice to be hearing her again. Anyway, she was born in uh, Saint-Sébastien-sur-Loire in the west coast of France. She's very young, so 24 years old. And I have some issues with the way she's presented in the CD booklets photographs. <laughs> I sent you these, right? Yes, yeah. Um, well, first of all, on the cover, it's kind of an odd pose. Like She looks like she's kind of in a marching band, except that she's wearing this really sexy dress with uh, glitter on it or something. It's kind of, it's form-fitting. So they're, they're kind of going for a little sex appeal there, which I don't think is right for classical music, but I don't know. Anyway, it, it, it I guess it helps a little bit, but it just doesn't fit the, the style, really. I don't know. Hummel and sexy don't usually go together. Yeah, I don't know. You know, Anyway, so she's getting this, uh, they, they're trying to make her look young and vivacious, but I mean, stick to the artistry here. Make her look like an artist a little more, guys. Okay, there are no notes in the booklet on the works, just a message from Renaud Dunvalli herself. And I don't like it when music labels, and this is, o the only people who do this are the major labels, the big ones, the kind of more independent mm -hmm. ones, like the ones we love, like Hyperion, Chandos, Beast, all these other ones, will present the artists as artists, okay? But here they try to uh, present classical musicians like they're pop stars, and I always think that's a bad move because they're not pop stars. In this case, she's playing standard trumpet concertos, and uh, this recording is like a calling card for her. You want to kind of, this is what's going to get you, mm. I guess, uh, known. You know, these are, she's introducing her ability in the most famous concertos for trumpet, and I think they're all here, really. <laughs> a lot of them are, some of, some of the really big ones. We start with Johann Nepomuk Hummel, trumpet concerto in E-flat, 
without opus number one. This is a really famous trumpet concerto. Hummel was a contemporary of Beethoven, and he was um, rather famously a student of both Beethoven and Mozart. He had great teachers, and he was a really good composer himself, but Beethoven's shadow was too big at this time, and we don't hear a lot of his music, and that's a bit of a shame. There are other reasons, too, which have to do with the instruments he wrote for, but um, let's talk about this. First of all, Renaud and I want to hear your comments on this, Russ. Uh, she plays this on a B-flat trumpet when there's an E-flat trumpet for this concert, and it's written mm-hmm. in E-flat, okay? So when she was younger, she didn't have an E-flat trumpet. That's why she's right. doing this. And she wanted to keep using the B-flat because of its warmer sonority, even though it's technically harder to play the work on the B-flat trumpet. The same goes for the uh, Haydn concerto that we're going to hear later. She plays it on the B-flat trumpet instead of the much easier E-flat, given the key mm-hmm. of the work. Anyway, in the first movement, Allegro con Spirito, she gets a big, bright sound with the timpani impacting through the speakers. So this is a rather nice um, sounding recording. There's a nice room sound on the orchestra, and really just the right amount of decay is captured in the room. Strings are crystal clear. The orchestra plays both sonata themes in the exposition before we hear the trumpet. And it's kind of a nice way for uh, our soloist, Lucien Renaudin-Varie, to start the program uh, by keeping us waiting and anticipating. You want to do that. You want to make that late entry. All right. So we finally hear her two minutes into the movement, and the sound is bright and emphatic. She phrases very nicely with a bright legato tone. Um, I think there could be more lightness and flexibility in her playing, but that's something that will come with experience because I'm hearing her aware of the need for that. You know, she's she's doing it or trying to do it. I think smooth and bright are words I'm going to use a lot for her playing. That's interesting. What do you mean? You didn't think so? I call their sound dark. You thought it was dark. But, yes. Um, but oh, interesting. I used to have this conversation with my trumpet teachers a lot, and they said, you know, these, what one person calls bright, another person calls dark, and those yeah. adjectives really don't cross over I, yeah, very well opposites. from listener to listener. All right. Well, let me just def- yeah. explain for the listeners what I'm thinking about here. When I think of the trumpet, I think of two sounds. There's, um, wait, what's the other word I use? Because I use it later on. Bright would be like the, um, Oh, who's the jazz? Tr- I'm blanking out here. Who's the jazz trumpeter? The the really yeah, Michael Brecker, Randy, Randy Brecker, Brecker. Yeah, Randy, Randy Brecker. Brecker. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Randy, Michael Brecker's the uh, saxophonist. Okay, so he, I, I think of him as having as the quintessential bright mm-hmm. sound, and the other one is the uh, the sound that Latin people get more. I I call that burnished. Okay, you know, it's kind of like there's something like kind of brown about it or something mm-hmm. like that. Like it's not. So I think of the trumpet as bright and burnished. And that's just the way I. Okay. Explain mm. it. So do you have something to between dark and bright and burnished, or what do you think? It's really hard to say because some sounds- yeah, It's just words. Mm. The timbres are unique. So you could have a tone that actually has like a really warm core to it, but it sort of has these brighter overtones that mm-hmm. come out. And ah, So you'll listen to overtones. Yeah, I think so. Just because it was my instrument and I'm sensitive to it, and I was always trying to identify and can usually identify the players I know well within a couple notes just based on that tone. Mm-hmm. And and some players have a very manipulative ability to change their tone like a chameleon, uh, depending mm-hmm. on what they play, or some change in different registers. And then some players kind of sound the same all the yeah. time. Some of them even sound like super bright, even when they play a flugelhorn, which kind of gets to me uh, sometimes. But, yeah, you know, yeah, that is no a darker sounding instrument yeah. to me. It's got, a, it's got a more. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> I I would call that a more burnished tone. Now, 
my vocabulary to describe music it's it's a hard thing to do by the way if anyone out there wants to try it to describe in words what you're Mm -hmm. hearing yeah but we all hear differently and we'll just kind of think associate sounds we hear with different words so it's it's hard to do so i don't keep that in mind when i talk here so Mm -hmm. you know more what i'm talking about anyway i said there could be more lightness and flexibility in her phrasing like i said She's front and center in the mix. You can hear every tone she makes. The balance is very good. That doesn't mean that that's not a bad thing that she's front and center. There's a gorgeous pianissimo in her playing just at the beginning in the fourth minute before her cadence, after which the orchestra heads to its own cadence. I think she's getting, um, first of all, excellent accompaniment here, showing her playing off to maximum advantage. At six minutes and 16 seconds, we're back to the trumpet's first entry phrase, which we first heard at the two-minute mark. Um, there's a spectacular explosive false cadence at about eight minutes and 25 seconds. That's worth keeping an ear out for. I'm a big fan of the false cadence. You'll notice it, though. So this is an uplifting beginning to this piece and album. The Andante, the second movement, is in 6-8 time and has a repeating chord pattern in the orchestra that reminds me of the slow movement of Mozart's 21st piano concerto, which listeners of a certain age... Well, remember, is the theme music for the movie Elvira Madigan that came out in the 60s. In fact, the trumpet line in this piece recalls the concerto's melody at certain times. I'm sure Hummel had it in mind. Uh, Mozart was, after all, one of his teachers. Again, Reynolds and Vary plays with a smooth, bright tone. I'm using the word bright as we've <laughs> described here. <laughs> I think, I'm thinking of the core of the tone as bright. I'm not really aware of too much of the harmonics, I think, on the trumpet. But let's see. Phrasing nicely by just missing the last bit of lightness that would make her take flight. It's not enough to put me off this performance, which is very sensitive nonetheless. Um, The tone she gets is really enjoyable. Uh, She gets a few shadings of the tone as well. There could be more. The thing is, part of it is I'm not expecting this this really nuanced performance from such a young player. So I'm giving her a lot of, I think, space because I can hear that she's really good and that a lot of these um, things are going to come with um, further maturity. Mm. The third um, movement rondo is very impressive. Um, Renaud de Vary starts with this virtuosic repeated notes, and they sound fantastic. Actually, all three classical albums we're going to hear today have yeah. this technique, so you can hear all three of the trumpets um, in this technique. Renaud de Vary gets the comic aspect of this movement to come across as well, and that says something for her uh, about her musicality. She understands the music she's playing. Um, there's a playfulness in her phrasing that shows she's sensitive to the humor. Not always the case with classical musicians. <laughs> and I've heard quite a few recordings where a lot of humor that I've heard of them has been missed by the uh, performers. Not here, though. Um, she's, she gets this. The orchestra is with her all the way, getting a nice hush in the pianissimo sections in the second minute. Uh, the ending doesn't quite give a feeling of ascending off. It just sort of tapers away. But I really enjoyed her playing in this movement. Okay, so tracks four through six, we have our next work. Johann Baptiste Georg Neruda, 1711 to 1776. So he's in the uh, late Baroque, early classical era. And this is his trumpet concerto in E-flat. This is basically a Baroque era work, though. It's got a harpsichord in it as well. The first movement is Allegro. And it starts off with the standard fast-moving Baroque intro. Renaud d'Anvary's sound suits this music very well with its ringing tone. It'd be great to hear her in an all-Baroque recording, in fact, on the evidence of this piece, which I'm sure is in her future. There's a brief cadenza after the four-minute mark that's expressive and well-phrased. It's a lively, happy movement with lean orchestra playing and the trumpet sounding really well. I mean that as an adverb there. Sounds sounds well. Hmm. 
the second movement, Largo, is a harpsichord continuo and strings set the theme for this slow movement. Lovely phrasing all the way through by Renaudin Vary. Um, she gets a brief cadenza right at the end before the final cadence. And I have to say the Lucerne Symphony Orchestra gets an exceptionally sensitive sound in this movement. Third movement, Vivace, has rushing patterns from the orchestra, lightly taken. Again, Renaudin Vary's bright tone serves this Baroque work well. There's a nice climbing line at about a minute and 38 seconds with trills included that I found very attractive. Now she gets another cadenza at 3 minutes and 26 seconds, and this one's pretty bold with winding phrases played out really fully. She quietens a little for the lines at 3 minutes and 45 seconds, then heads for her cadence. Trills aren't razor sharp, but are clean and satisfying nonetheless. The piece ends with an undramatic tapering off. All right, tracks seven through nine, another very famous trumpet concerto, Joseph Haydn, uh, trumpet concerto in E-flat, Hoboken, seven lowercase e, number one, colon one. You got you to gotta say uppercase and lowercase because they've used both <laughs> for different works. It's really kind of exasperating, but Haydn wrote a lot of music, so I guess it's necessary. The first movement, Allegro, has an energetic, upbeat beginning. Renaud Varie's entry is just past the one-minute mark. And you can hear that she's more confident in this work, even though she's playing it on a B-flat trumpet. Yeah, something about this work, like her confidence level has gone up and will stay up for the rest of the album. I noticed the same thing. Yeah, when you go back, the the first two pieces all of a sudden don't sound as confident. Although when I was listening to it the first time, I didn't notice that. Anyway, the phrasing has more flexibility in phrasing than she's shown so far. Right, I had kind of said, quibbled a little bit, saying that, you know, she's not really very flexible in her phrasing. Well, she's got a little more of that here. I suspect this work has been with her for a longer time. In the fourth minute, I'm hearing clean, rapid figures in the trumpet and exceptionally appealing brightness of tone. (laughs) There's my word again, bright. Russ is going to turn this on its head when he comes in, but uh, that's okay. (laughs) Well, actually, what I said is into the Haydn, now I noticed a little more brightness, especially in the upper register. Okay, um, you're probably hearing a more nuanced sound than I am. That's what I'm guessing here. But anyway, the cadenza starts at 5 minutes and 11 seconds, and she starts it before the orchestra releases its chord. Again, the phrasing has more elasticity to it. This performance is a level of confidence up from the already pretty confident performances we've heard before. It's very impressive. Second movement, Andante, Renaud Vary sounds fine in this movement, but the orchestra shows a bit more sensitivity than she does in their lightness of tone. The repeated material isn't exactly the same, letting me know that Renaud Vary has the musical sense to make uh, repeated phrases interesting. But it's not so different that it's noticeable. What's positive about this is that she's already on her way to do bigger things. We can hear this, that she's, this is going to be a really good player. And she already is, but I mean, there's still more room to move forward in. The third movement, finale, is an allegro, and she sounds um, more comfortable in these quick virtuosic movements, to be honest. She gets a clean, rapid-fire, repeated note, salvos off with ease, the brightness of her tone, serves this movement well. Yeah, this is something I'm noticing about her. Um, She's more comfortable in the virtuosic fast movements than she is in the the more sensitive slow movements where you really have to show some some feeling. I mean, she's got feeling, certainly, but there's room for more. Those those slow movements are hard. You got to really play them. I know this from the piano. One of the, one of the things about People are always amazed to see your fingers moving so fast in these really virtuosic works. But once you get all the motions down, those types of works tend to play themselves. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like 
you get into this groove and you can just play it all and your audience is wowed by it. But if you're playing like a, a slow movement, you got to be concentrating all the way through because you need that sensitivity of phrasing and tone. And this is not automatic. It doesn't really no. get into your body. You got to be listening really carefully in those. So that's the way to tell a great pianist is, or a great musician is how they play the slow movements in classical music. Mm. I, I suspect that's true in jazz too, how they play ballads, how they phrase them. You know? Yeah, I think so. That's why we liked that um, Bill Charlap yeah. recording uh, that had like suspended time. Right. In yeah, we really liked that one a lot. I, I got to listen to that again. It's been a few months mm. since I've heard that because I do go back to it a lot. Yeah. All right. Next, a familiar work for us, Alexander Arutunian. Trumpet Concerto in A-flat. Arutunian um, lived from 1920 to 2012, so he's a 20th century composer. And we actually just heard Paul Mercolo play this on his Naxos release, Trumpet Concertos by Arutunian, Weinberg, and Shostakovich, or Weinberg and Shostakovich, on episode 88, Horns of Plenty, which yes. was, I guess was our, no, <laughs> our Thanksgiving episode from November 7th, early mm -hmm. in the month. This starts with a percussion roll and a rather soulful trumpet line that Renaud Denvary puts across with the proper feeling. So she's got like a nice soulful feel here. She's showing a lot of sensitivity to her varying lines in this piece. The recording of the orchestra on this, as really throughout the album, is fantastic. Aritunian's orchestration is more spacious than that in the previous works. So the sound field opens up in this piece and we hear the trumpet fitting into it rather than riding it as in previous works. Sections change rapidly in this single movement concerto, and at 2 minutes and 53 seconds, we're in an exotic frame with Renaud Denvary lightening her tone for the material. By the seventh minute, we've got brighter, more virtuosic material, and Renaud Denvary blends well with the orchestra here, while her solo line is always up front as it should be. The piece suddenly quietens again in the ninth minute, and a lyrical theme is heard in the trumpet, again sensitively taken. Renaud Varry seems to like the romantic idiom. She puts it across very well. And I guess it's been her, her previous albums have all been, well, Piazzolla, but also she does a lot of romantic and early 20th century music as well. And she seems to like Spanish music a lot. So I think the romantic idiom suits her approach really well. These slower sections hint at jazz ballads, and I'm hearing some appealing soulfulness from Renaud Varry in them. In the 13th minute, we build up to something more aggressive and hear those rapid notes that Renaud Denvary is so good at. The playing on this album has been getting better as it's gone on, and I think this is the best performance on the album so far. The romantic and early 20th century seems to be the idiom Renaud Denvary is most at home in. A very satisfying performance. The next work is a bit of a surprise. Harry, Harry James, jazz bandleader and trumpeter. His concerto for trumpet, arranged by Nicholas Uria. I'm pretty impressed, I gotta say, by the way the opening bluesy line is played by Renaud Denvary, sounding jazzy and blue, and maybe a bit quick. She does get an incredibly virtuosic run of notes, reminding one of uh, the Flight of the Bumblebee, really, the Rimsky-Korsakov piece right after this, with the tone and volume consistent. The swing feel at 1 minutes and 31 seconds onward is well realized, too. This is often an issue with classical musicians, but uh, she seems to have a pretty good feel for it. This does sound pretty jazzy. Uh, the orchestra captures the idiom well. I wish this were longer. It's only 3 minutes and 10 seconds. It's a pretty exciting track and really an exciting piece. You mentioned you had sent me the video of actually Harry James conducting and playing this, actually. It was yeah. really... Fantastic. All right, and that's really it, except that we have one more track, track 12. It's a bonus. It's uh, 
our soloist playing a postscriptum on Haydn. So this is an improvisation that Lucien Renaud-Danvary has come up with on a theme from the Haydn concerto played solo. It was completely unplanned and spontaneous and sounds it in the best possible way. It's bright-toned, inspired, and holding the interest for its brief 1 minute and 29 seconds. And it's also, amazingly, well-shaped, considering that it's a spontaneous um, mm-hmm. solo, ending on a nice uh, tonic at the end. Anyway, given her age especially, I was impressed by Renaud Danvary's playing throughout. The program is planned to show her off in the best possible light, and the orchestra is right there supporting her. Um, they sound great throughout. Renaud Danvary's playing seems to get better as the album goes on, as I mentioned. I wonder if the works were recorded in the order they're programmed here. She seems more, let me see, she seems more in the various, in the idiom as the album goes on, and especially from the Haydn piece on. There's nothing wrong with the first two works, though. She sounds great in them, but there's more flexibility in her phrasing from the Haydn work on. And as I said, she sounds most comfortable in the Eretz Union, and to be honest, the Harry James. She seems to really enjoy that playing that piece. It's a good calling card of an album, and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more of her as a soloist in the future. And as I said, I'm hoping for a Baroque trumpet concerto album in the future. Well, trumpet players, the big three H's uh, we learn, at least back in the old days, before you could hear all these recordings of more obscure pieces we've been listening to recently, were Haydn, Hummel, and Hindemith. It's a big mm-hmm. jump, but <laughs> those are the, the three that almost everyone had to play through. We were talking light or bright or dark sound. I would call her sound rather dark and centered in that it has a sort of compactness to it. doesn't have a lot of sort of layers of the overtones that uh, some players oh. have. And So you think of brightness as having the layers of overtones? It could, yeah. Okay. And mm. that works really well in a lot of classical music. Actually, I've noticed a trend in a lot of classical players, and especially in jazz players, striving for this excessively dark kind of sound in recent years and, and sometimes it's just like too much uh, anyway in the Hummel uh, I thought that she was a bit tentative in execution here as you said the good parts about her playing is her tone is really lovely and I just think it's too lovely sometimes uh, okay. it, it, it sounds too similar in all situations but her technique is really great and I like her phrasing a lot her multiple tonguing is really really fast and accurate and that's really good when we got to the haydn i thought that was more confident and compared to the hummel i thought was a better performance captured here and i also noticed as she went through in the neruda also there's a little bit more edge and sort of uh, forceful expression on the cadenzas that started to come out and i liked that Mm -hmm. a lot too i thought the haydn was uh, very strong and i liked the little bit of the flair she got on the finale on that movement. Artunian, I thought was really pleasing performance, fleet, nice articulation, and the soaring parts had a bit of a contrast with the softer parts in her tone, and I really like the phrasing. The Harry James, this is the one <laughs> I have to uh, take Well, a you would, with. right? Being a, such, such a big jazz listener, you want to hear it sound like jazz. Like It's nice yeah. that she picked this yeah. piece to play, and I imagine she has a lot of young fans who maybe don't know who Harry James was. Now, Harry James was a master trumpeter and kind of a celebrity of his day as well, big band leader. One interesting thing about him is he was able to get a variety of tones on the trumpet, uh, sounding very full, uh, almost cornet or flugelhorn-like in the lower register. But he had this really lightning upper register tone. And um, 
that's what we call sizzle in <laughs> trumpet playing. Yeah. And so this piece, uh, if you're curious, anyone, you can find a performance of it. I think it's kind of like a dubbed performance from a movie, but it's actually him playing the music from 1942 with a big band orchestration of it. But this piece needs to be delivered like when you get a you order a steak on a hot plate and it comes out it's got to come out and be served with sizzle on the tongue yeah, okay and you don't get any sizzle here because okay she, yeah she doesn't do that yeah, I she's think, not a but, sizzling player technically yeah she performs it really well but yeah not only that but she does have a good feel for jazz like some classical yeah. musicians just don't put jazz across no. so they rush it too much she mm -hmm. has the feel for it but yeah i mean the, the sizzle part, I mean, that's, I think you need to be a jazz musician to be able to do that, though. I don't know. Well, some classical players have a sizzle on their sound, too. I guess. But, uh, mm. You know, it's a different, it's a different kind of tone. It depends on a lot of things, on just your approach, your tone, your equipment that you use, and a lot of other things, too. So, anyway, yeah, right. a fine program. Overall, really good playing. Technically impressive. And a lot of really good musicality on these works here. So, I thought the Haydn was the most confident and impressive. And I also like the Aratunian. I thought that had a lot of expressive moments in it. Yeah, that's a really nice piece that we need to hear more interpretations of, I think. When I hear Harry James, I've always kind of associated him as a, just being a band leader for some reason. I don't know. It's just because of those old recordings. A couple sides to Harry James. And you have to remember yeah. that when he was coming up, big band music was the popular music of the day. Right. And he was also... A good jazz player as well but there's two sides he had a lot of commercial releases like the sleepy lagoon and that and mm -hmm. you know i think the word for a lot of that music the new york word is schmaltzy right <laughs> <So>. <laughs> like like mantovani remember him yeah yeah mantovani strings <laughs> yeah so i mean he had some more obviously commercial type recordings not that they weren't played with uh, very good musicianship but he also had you know a virtuosity and uh, jazz ability and he was able to sort of play upon both of those and get celebrity status i mean in the day everyone knew who he was probably the boomer generation everyone knows harry james in our generation uh, musicians know who he was and probably in the millennial generation, he's probably not so well known beyond that. I, so. I really feel like millennials and people after them, Gen Z, are just forgetting the entire past. I think it's really sad. I mean, we're trying to remedy that a little bit. Yeah. Hopefully get them to look back. But time is passing. I, I remember when I, when I was younger, you know, in the 70s, rock and roll was only 30 years old. Right. Now it's like 70 years old. There's like another 40 years <laughs> added to it, you know. A couple of things and about we're that. We're just so far away from its roots, you know. My mom was a Beatles fan and she had yeah. a lot of albums. I, I still can remember. This is just like it was yesterday. It must have been about 1983. Yeah. I remember sitting in the living room and I pulled out some of my mom's albums and I think she had like Meet the Beatles. Right. Their, their first the American, like American release. release. Yeah. And I think that was 1963. Yeah. I remember right. pulling that out in 1982 or 83 and looking at it and thinking, wow, this is so old. <laughs> it was like just 20 years old, but I thought it was ancient at the time. Now that said, yeah. you know, I got really interested in jazz music in, around junior high school when I started playing in jazz big band and whatnot. That's and, young. I was aware of jazz, but I wasn't really listening to it until college. And, and, th and that was a bad time to be listening to it too. I'll explain why later. But it wasn't easy. I mean, mm. there, you could listen to a couple college stations that had jazz shows on, you know, on the weekend or at night, odd times on FM radio. And the rest of the music that I wanted to hear, I had to drive 
once I you got a driver's license, I had to go to the library and rent albums, you mm. know, to build up my vocabulary. You know, who's Duke Ellington? I got to listen to his recordings. Oh, I want right. to hear all these trumpet players and stuff. You know, it was an effort <laughs> that cost yeah. me money that I didn't have in gas and time. It wasn't just like today. You could just put on Spotify oh, and, and yeah, listen that to was all true of stuff, all of us, so. really. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the technology is there to hear anything now. So I just hope that people still continue to look back at the great music of the past to inform their, you know, musical decisions and perspectives. Yeah, I've mentioned my dad's, um, you know, jazz you know, right. album collection. And uh, I would have grown up kind of listening to and liking jazz if he had, you know, listened to it and talked to me about it. But he didn't. I don't know. He was kind of... <laughs> too bad, yeah. yeah. He did like Frank Sinatra a lot, though, but mm -hmm. and he didn't really talk about it. He, he wasn't really musically inclined. He wanted to play the sax, as, as far as I knew, but he never... Right. Did. He never learned it. But, um, yeah, so it's a shame because it's also, I think it's kind of a loss to your, your children too. You got to yeah. like expose them to music, the music you love, you know, because mm. uh, there's something in there because they're going to listen to their own thing anyway. So you can give them something else, mm. you know. I mean, they, they listen to like Tom Jones, you know, like, all these like singers. Right. But, <laughs> Tom Jones had a fantastic voice and still does amazingly at 80 years old. But he, he sang really all, a lot of really awful songs. He had a lot of cheesy tunes in there. He had yeah, cheesy yeah. tunes. Oh, yeah. man. Don't get me started. Great instrument, though. <laughs> it, it's a great <laughs> instrument and remains so. He had a great yeah. sound, yeah. There's a great video of him singing um, I'm Never Gonna Fall in Love Again on YouTube. You should check that out. It's, it's a really good song and a great performance, yeah. too. So, yeah, for me... I just wanted to mention, like, when I was in college, jazz was um, going through that phase where the Marsalis um, family was kind of right. taking over. So when Marsalis' album had come out, and I, I liked Pat Metheny. He was doing good music at the time. But a lot of it was really, it was post-fusion um, from the 70s. So there's a little bit of that. A lot of jazz musicians were, like, sort of, they were going into, like, a new agey or spiritual kind of place. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of felt like this kind of light, airy sort of thing or it was really super intellectual or the music that Whitmore Salas and the Marsalis family played it was kind of looking back to the past mm -hmm. so yeah. there wasn't anything kind of mainstream you know it was all sort of you know you had mm -hmm. to really work for it you know yeah. but that's changed a lot oh, I yeah. think um, if people aren't you know, since really the two, the twenty first century, really in the nineteen nineties too, mm -hmm. um, you had you had mentioned uh, Cassandra Wilson to me, like artists like that really started turning yeah. it around and making it more mainstream, and now there's a lot of really great jazz being made. And I feel like a lot of people aren't listening to it because of the seventies and eighties, <laughs> but uh, and nineties, you know, but in we'll the nineties it started picking up again. We're going to we'll, change all that. We'll you got to start that. listening to what we're talking about because I think this is all really good. All right, let's get on to our second classical album. This is another, well, actually all three of their, the, tr the classical trumpeters we're going to hear, we've already talked about in a previous episode. This time, we have an album called Seraph, which is a kind of angel. And this is by the uh, trumpeter Tina Ting Helseth. She's accompanied by the Ensemble Allegria. Helseth is from Oslo, Norway. And this is on the Lawo Classics label, which is a Norwegian record label. So this is all, you know, in-house, I guess, or in, you know, a total Norway release. Mm. I want to say something about Tina Ting Helseth. If she were to become a movie star, she could just take the Helseth off her name and use the English pronunciation Tyne Thing, and she'd be a big star. <laughs> That's a fantastic name. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Just wanted to put that out there. Anyway. <laughs> 
Tinating Hellset that would is the pronunciation for this. Or close to it anyway. That's what I got from the my searches on the internet. Anyway, we last heard her on episode twenty five from Moravia through Scandinavia to Brazilian Sands on August second, twenty twenty one. That was a good episode though. There was, was some good, good one, music yeah. on that one. Yeah, that uh the Sands uh, record. That was a yeah, uh, jazz that was really yeah, nice. that's, I still listen to that now. That was on August 2nd, 2021, and we featured her album, Magical Memories for Trumpet and Organ, also on the Lawo mm. label. Trumpet and Organ is an interesting combination. Yeah. Well, anyway, here we're going to get the orchestra, her with the orchestra, so we're going to hear her in a different guise. By the way, just let's just mention this album cover. Um, she's got a striking appearance with short, blonde, almost white hair. And on the cover, she's kind of, her body is cut off at the waist so she appears to be wearing a Japanese kimono because it's got these really long sleeves. Um, but other photos show that the wide sleeves are a top. It's a top. And so she's wearing, mm. she's got pants underneath that. So it's a, the, the cut is designed to look like a Japanese kimono, which I thought was interesting. Mm. There are several wardrobe changes in the photos in the booklet. And this must have been quite an involved photo shoot. It must have like, <laughs> They must have been out in the woods the whole day. There's a nature forest theme in the photos and kind of makes her out to be a bit of a wood sprite, I guess, <laughs> with her rather short-haired uh, blonde look too. So make of that as you will. It's it's interesting, I thought. Mm. I think it's an interesting approach. It's kind of um, giving her a nature vibe. Anyway, this particular album has a lot of contemporary works on it, which I thought was mm. very exciting. And uh, they're pretty interesting too. The first one is um, a piece called well, Concerto for Trumpet and Strings, uh, composed by Eric Ewazen, or Ewazen, E-W-A-Z-E-N. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Eric, if you're listening. He's um, an American composer from Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, my. <laughs> wow. Cleveland. Okay. Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland. Yeah. He's a member of the currently, apparent, according to the CD notes anyway, a member of the Juilliard faculty in New York. And he has, if you're an American uh, music fan, he has quite a list of impressive teachers here. He studied composition with Milton Babbitt at Juilliard hmm. and with Samuel Adler at the Eastman School of Music oh, wow. and Gunther Schuller at the Tanglewood Music Festival. So he went to all the great schools on the East yeah. Coast, basically, <laughs> or or close to, or in the East, let's say, of right. the USA. I like this piece best of all those in the program, actually. So um, Yeah, he has quite an education. This work was originally a quintet for trumpet and strings. Um, the lyrical quality of the trumpet is dominant throughout. This is according to the booklet notes, by the way, um, though it does get angular midway through the allegro mm. and harmonically nods to Bartok. I didn't really think so, but mm. that's, what, that's what they said. It wasn't thinks of his style as neo-romantic. And yeah, I'd agree with that. That sounds good. Movement one. This is a four movement work, which is a little unusual for a concerto. They usually have three movements. The first movement is Allegro Moderato. This um, opening reminds me of uh, Sibelius' Symphony No. 2 with its wavering strings at the beginning. Yeah. It sort of starts like that. The trumpet comes in, one of my favorite works, by the way. The trumpet comes in right away, another bright-toned soloist here, but with highly concentrated, expressive qualities. Would you say bright for this one? What did you say? I think she has a lot uh, more of a palette of tones. I call it, oh, uh, she does, yeah. especially in the second movement, shimmering kind of vibrato huh. and uh, a glowing tone. Glowing, nice. Yeah. That's a good so word. I, I enjoyed her tone, sort of uh, vocabulary and varied uh, sounds a lot. Yeah. All right. We'll get to the second movement mm. in a moment. The trumpet comes in right away, okay, and uh, highly concentrated expressive qualities, I said. 
Yeah, I guess that's the same thing. That's actually what you said, yeah. too. The piece is taken at a rather measured pace, which seems to suit the trumpet well. She plays fluidly and comfortably. The recording has great clarity and depth to it, like the previous album we heard. We get, we're getting some good recordings this week, some mm. good uh, engineering on these albums. Uh, the so-called angular part comes up at uh, the two-minute mark and really won't disturb polite company. It's, it's still appealing. At the end, the music speeds up for some buildup of tension. It quietens at the four-minute mark, letting the ears focus squarely on the trumpet for the ending. The second movement is a scherzo, and it's got pretty orchestration at the beginning. It's all strings, but we hear a pizzicato and a thin, ghostly bowing, perhaps sul ponticello or just a light touch on the strings. This becomes fuller as the trumpet comes in with a winding line wrapping around the equally winding strings. Think of vines wrapping around a sort of fence post or a tree or something. That's kind of the image this gave me. There's an ear-catching diminuendo in the strings in the first minute as a new section starts. The strings are always bubbling happily as the trumpet plays, as though thrilled by its themes. Hmm, nice way to be. Some interesting use of the strings various timbres in the third minute as the accompaniment starts racing. Then we get a more romantic sweeping melody in the fourth minute, interrupted by the return of bubbling accompaniment as the trumpet melodically plays us to the end. There's a pretty ending chord in this movement as well. The third movement, elegia, or elegy. The strings come in mysteriously with spread out chords and a light bounce as the trumpet plays a mournful melody. From the middle of the movement, the trumpet's theme livens up as the strings play open fifths in the bass, a sound I really love, and warm harmonies in the mid-range. At 3 minutes and 43 seconds, a more hopeful theme is heard in the trumpet, and the strings become a bit brighter. The fourth and final movement is marked Allegro Agitato. Uh, this starts with bowed bass notes and a brief repeating trumpet theme that concludes its line after being heard twice. This has an agitated flow to it, as the tempo direction would suggest. By the one-minute mark, we've got a moderate tempo, but a lot of agitated quick lines within it by the strings and trumpet. A fugato starts in the strings in the second minute. Quickly, a, a fugato is something that starts like a fugue, but doesn't continue like one. It starts in the strings. It's an imitation fugue, let's say. It starts in the strings in the second minute, quickly breaking down to fast, bowed, repeating notes, and a single sustained harmony as the trumpet solos. The ending is bright and positive. Track five is our second work by Rolf Wallen, born in 1957, so he's a contemporary composer. His Elegy, composed in 2009, he's Norwegian, born in Oslo, um, and he's a trumpeter himself. The work is conservative in idiom, again exploiting the lyrical potential of the trumpet. Um, and it was written for the funeral of uh, Wallen's sister, who died, he says, all too early. He played the trumpet at the funeral. Anyway, in this work, pulsing strings accompany a mournful trumpet melody. I have to say, the trumpet does mourning exceptionally well, <laughs> mm. judging by this piece. I often associate it with bright fanfares. Um, this work is brief at 3 minutes and 21 seconds and proceeds a bit like a song. It's highly melodic and builds to a dramatic peak at the two-minute mark, after which there's a pause and we get a repeat of the opening material without the harmonic crisis at the two-minute mark being resolved. It's a moving, brief piece. The next work we get is uh, by Scottish composer James Macmillan, and this is called uh, Seraph, and it's the title track, as it were. The, the album is named after this piece. Uh, this was composed in the year 2010. Macmillan was born in 1959 and is a contemporary composer. 
Macmillan is um, his music is often inspired by his Roman Catholic faith. Now, before you start thinking, um, oh, this is going to be like Marvel paired. It's going to be the spiritual music. <laughs> think again. Um, I think Macmillan really likes the more, you know, the he, he's Scottish, but it, he, his music kind of reminds me of the really bloody crucifixes that you see in southern <laughs> Italy or Mediterranean countries or Mexico or places like that. Mm. He really gets into the drama of the Catholic right. faith. I have a few of his albums that he kind of writes very dramatically and uh, let's say loudly a lot of um, times. Uh, this work was uh, written for and dedicated to Alison Balsam, another mm. great trumpeter, a contemporary trumpeter. Macmillan says that a seraph is a celestial being or angel, usually and traditionally associated with trumpets. Yeah, I guess they would be. Yeah. The first movement has no tempo marking. It's just a dash. And it starts with, this is pretty typical of Macmillan, short stabbing quarter notes from the strings <laughs> with the trumpet immediately coming in in its low end, which is a really cool sound. I just like the low end of every instrument for some reason. The trumpet has a fanfare quality to it, I guess like a seraph would play, and becomes more lyrical after about the 51 second mark when the strings float some lighter lines. There's a contrast between short and stabbing and light and lyrical. It tends to go back and forth between the two in this relatively brief movement. It's four minutes and 14 seconds long. I like Helseth's attention-grabbing tone in this. She's got real presence as a soloist. The second movement, Adagio. Here, the principal melodic material is played by solo violin or tutti strings, while the soloist seems to ruminate introspectively with oppositional and contrary lines. That's what the notes say. My listening, I said it starts lightly with quick bowing on the strings. The trumpet starts its line and a violin immediately comes in with something more florid and melodic. It's like two soloists playing different lines, though they're harmonious. The trumpet, of, to me, stands out due to its timbre. It does, it's just, it doesn't sound like a string instrument, in spite of the solo violins melodizing. So I, my ear was just kind of drawn to the trumpet just because of its different timbre. Third and final movement, marcato e ritmico. Based on a closely worked canonic idea, the trumpet part is peppered with little military fanfares. This is the booklet notes. I think peppered is not really a part of my <laughs> vocabulary. <laughs> I, I took that from that. I do like the word, though. Mm. It has rushing string figures in the bass to start it out. The trumpet comes in with a melody that's pinned down by mid-range strings, playing the same melody in unison. It's an interesting effect. Uh, the trumpet goes off into a long string of eighth notes, and when the strings start accompanying with an ethereal tone in the first minute, the trumpet breaks into fanfare-like material with quick repeated notes. We hear this again at the two-minute mark where the strings get a longer section of ethereal playing to themselves. At two minutes and 45 seconds, there's a slow pressing of the brakes in the strings as they do a quick retard, like a car slowing down and stopping for a traffic light, after which the trumpet plays a lyrical solo. At 4 minutes and 20 seconds, the strings start a more anxious figure, and the trumpet comes in for fanfare figures. This quickly changes to a long eighth note figure, then something lyrical under galloping strings. The sections of the piece change quickly. The piece ends with a trill on the clarinet that simply ends on its target note. Clarinet or trumpet? I wrote the clarinet. I hope I got that right. Yeah, this is a really interesting work, timbrely speaking, like the... The combinations of instruments that Macmillan uses in this piece are pretty interesting. So we get to hear the trumpet combining with other instruments in really interesting ways. 
Track 9, we hear Alexander Arutiunian again, but this time we're not hearing a concerto. We're hearing his Elegy from the year 2000. It's a short piece. Gentle wavering strings start this out, setting a mood as the trumpet comes in with a lyrical minor mode melody. The melody throughout is appealing, and it's echoed by the string accompaniment. Arutiunian was a great melodist, I'm finding, from this work. It's a lovely composition, well-realized, well-interpreted here, lyrical and memorable. And I said Helsa's tone here was burnished. So I went and got away from the bright tone. So like you said, I think she's got a few, uh, mm. she's got a good um, timbral vocabulary, yeah. I guess, if I can use that word here. All right. The next three works, there are three works left on the program, are brief and in a popular style. So we've really heard the main part of the program. You can think about these as crowd-pleasing encores. Mm-hmm. They, they certainly please me. They're really nice. The first one is Poulenc. Francis Poulenc, uh, Le Chemin de l'Amour, a very famous um, work. It's from the incidental music that uh, Poulenc wrote for Jean Anouilh's play, Leocadia. I'd like to compliment the arrangement here, which is by, uh, boy, how do I say this name? Jarle Sturlokin, or Harle Sturlokin. I like the string intro, which is followed by a waltzing rhythm set by the strings with a full-on popular song melody sung by the trumpet. Yeah, Poulenc, he's a classical composer, but he wrote a lot of popular songs as well, and he had a real gift for melody when he decided to use it. Romantic French stuff here that puts one on Paris's cobblestone streets, immediately appealing. One could imagine this melody on the accordion very easily. Track 11 is um, Edvard Grieg. Cow Call, Opus 63, number two, also arranged by Sturlokin. We heard this before, but I couldn't figure out mm. where. But we Cow did hear, call. yeah, we heard this again. This was originally a piano piece. It's number 22 from the 25 Norwegian Folk Songs and Dances, Opus 17, by Grieg. I think this would make the cows get sleepy. I thought of it as kind of a lullaby. Yeah, it's more of a cow yeah. lullaby. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it starts solo on the trumpet with Helseth outlining the rhythm well in her phrasing of the melody. As you would imagine, it has the shape and appeal of a folk song. Another nod to Storlokin for the sensitive and highly appealing arrangement. <laughs> I wonder if people would play a piece called Cow Lullaby. <laughs> it's kind of funny. And a piece that I really love and a composer I really love, Eric Satie, uh, Je Te Veux. This was a song originally that Satie wrote for Paulette Darty, one of the well-known singers of the early 20th century in uh, France. It's also famous as a solo piano piece, which I played. <laughs> it's just so, it's fun, it's easy to play, and it's, uh, it's really appealing. Sur Loken rather softens the accompaniment here, giving Helseth the spotlight. The strings gently outline the waltz rhythm. Yeah, on the piano, maybe it's just the way I played it, but I felt like the rhythm was a lot heavier on the piano. It's it's hard to soften it as much as this. The B section is given to the strings, and the trumpet comes in for the repeat. It's a really nice uh, arrangement. Helseth plays the theme appealingly with subtle variations in phrasing that keep the piece interesting. So, at the end, I enjoyed this program, all of its appealing. Perhaps the Macmillan, the title piece, will push the listener a bit, um, but it's all tonal. It's an interesting piece. Macmillan has a way of giving his music a rough edge in line with his spiritual views, I guess. I think he thinks of Catholicism as being sort of hard won. You mm. know, the, the union with God as being a bit of a struggle, mm. let's say. Everything else is lyrical. Um, Helseth has a good presence as a soloist and a big, slightly burnished 
tone. I called her bright at the beginning, but as Russ said, she does change her tone quite a bit. It's it's a very different tone than the brighter tone we heard on Renaud Danvary's album, where it's a different tone. Let's just say that. Hal Seth is not a showy soloist, and I like that. I don't think many classical musicians have this kind of tone, and that gives her a unique take on the entire repertoire that she shares with other classical trumpeters. This album of appealing work should win her fans. It features new works that won't stretch the years much, but will keep the listener's interest all the same. Yeah, I enjoyed this one a lot. I like her tonal variety. I think her tone in general is brighter than the previous mm-hmm. recording, but she's got a lot of different sort of facets to it. She also mm-hmm. has a very nice vibrato, which complements the tone. And I think her strength as a player is great lyrical phrasing rather than sort of uh, pyrotechnics. And mm. in the end, that's really you know, one of the most important things, to make an instrument sing like a voice. If you can do that, you're going to convey something really nice. So I think she makes these very attractive and uh, lyrical uh, throughout the program. And the program itself is uh, pretty successful. My favorite is the, it was in the first piece. Uh, I found it just really interesting. Lots of opportunities for really good phrasing. Uh, I like the string parts as well. And the flowing trumpet lines, uh, the, let's see, the Wallen, this is kind of like almost movie theme like to me, but I thought it was a nice vehicle showing off her tone, this kind of burnished tone, nice vibrato. The Macmillan is, once you get to this, it's, uh, this is the kind of uh, tougher meat of the program. It's right. not as melodic as the opening work, but I thought it was rhythmically interesting and a lot of good contrasts in there. And the Arturian is uh, another one for lyrical phrasing. And then you get like a three-course dessert <laughs> menu with yeah. these uh, sweet, sweeter pieces. Uh, the Polonk is really nice, lilting, very French-sounding. The Cow Call Lullaby, because <laughs> 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 I enjoyed that as well. It's a, it's a pretty piece. Her strength, I think, is the phrasing and tone, and these just all sound really nice. So a good sequenced order and gives you something a little harder to digest first and then sort of eases you out with these nicer pieces too. So, enjoyable. Okay, now our third classical album is called Alchemy. And this is by another uh, of our favorite uh, trumpeters on this program, at least in the classical era, Mm. um, style. Fabio Brum, who's Brazilian, born in Rio de Janeiro. And he doesn't play the trumpet. He plays many trumpets, (laughs) cornets, flugelhorn, and horn. This uh, This is on Naxos, isn't it? It's on Naxos. And Naxos, you couldn't have made it any harder to figure out which instrument is on which track, but in the way that they described it. This yeah. is something I was really interested in. And the way they've got it listed, it's like a little numerical puzzle that doesn't add right. up exactly. <laughs> so. I will, I'll put it. Yeah, I'm not. I think he plays multiple instruments on yeah. single tracks at times. I actually listed them all out like in a chart, okay. so I can tell you what's on what track. And that's here. what they should have done track by track in the yeah. information here. Well, that's what I'm here for. Anyway, <laughs> the accompanying group is a uh, Real Orchestra Sinfonica de Sevilla, conducted by Noam Zur, and this is on the Naxos label, as Russ mentioned. Okay, the realizing of this recording was first discussed as far back as the year 2020. Understandably, since it consists entirely of new works or recently composed works, it would take time to kind of learn them, get the the ensemble together, get the recording set up. 
It was recorded in 2021 and released on uh, 23 September, so September 23rd, 2022. This is last year. It's an album of internal searching and external yearning, according Ooh. to the notes. The first composer we're going to hear, and there's going to be a lot of um, contemporary music on this. Yeah. In fact, I think it's all contemporary music. The first uh, composer is an Italian composer, Gabriele Roberto, who I've never heard of. But he's apparently done a lot of film music. I mean, I did look him up on IMDb, and in fact, he has hmm. done quite a lot of film music. He was born in 1972. This is work is called Solaria, and it's um, composed in 2021. And the um, instruments on this work by uh, played by Bruma, the trumpet in C and cornet in C. So apparently he's playing two different instruments. Right. Uh, you have to have a really good ear to be able to tell which <laughs> is which, though. Well, the cornet does have a more burnished tone to it. Anyway, this work was meant to inspire a collective comeback from the standstill created by the COVID-19 pandemic, an awakening and rebirth. Yeah, we're going to be hearing works about the COVID pandemic for years now. It's, kind of, it's in a way, you know, we can't, we can't get away from it. But that's okay. I mean, it's inspired people to do some pretty nice sort of spiritual thinking and stuff. The composer Gabriele Roberto, he's Italian. He was born in Cuneo in Piedmont, Italy. He was way up north and has worked a lot in Asia, including Japan. And we're mm. going to hear his piece about Japan at the end of this yeah. uh, program. He scored several Japanese films, apparently. We'll hear his impressions on the country at the end of this program, as I said. Anyway, this piece, Solaria, starts with lively string lines, a lively string line, with fanfarish quick repeated notes from the trumpet. It's very optimistic in tone, and I think it's trying to shake us out of any depression that the COVID pandemic mm. may have implanted in us. It's so open-hearted, I would think it's American. And in fact, it kind of put me in mind of the feeling, not really the sound, that uh, Peter Boyer's music gave me when I, we talked yeah. about that on the podcast. Mm. At a minute and 30 seconds, there's a more sweeping string theme that comes in, sounding comforting. By the two-minute mark, this turns more inward, like a memory of something that's no longer an issue. The trumpet plays lyrically here, and I should say Broom's tone falls somewhere between burnished and bright. He's more on the burnished side, I'd say. This is in my trumpet vocabulary um <laughs> which i think is more limited than russ's i mean he's got he's got the the better brass ear <laughs> i called this one shiny shiny that's yeah, a sh great word. shiny tone i wrote okay so we've heard three very different tones from our classical trumpeters on this program in the third minute there's a slowly taking cadenza showing off the trumpet's tone and broom's lyricism the orchestral strings come in with a warm, big-hearted theme. Again, this puts me in the mind of the optimism of American symphonic music. The theme gets more active, and we have a quick major key, open-hearted, optimistic ending. So uh, this should hmm. blow away your COVID uh, yeah. anxieties right away. And then you can listen to the rest of the album happily. Going on to the next piece. Dimitri Cervo, or Cervo, he's um, Brazilian. And uh, he was born in 1968, so he's a contemporary composer too. This is from his uh, Serie Brasil 2010, number 10. And it's called As Quatro Estações Brasileiras, which means I don't speak Portuguese. I just sounded that out. The Brazilian Four Seasons. This was written in 2018 to 2019, and the version for trumpet and orchestra was um, arranged in 2020. Cervo was born in the south in Santa Maria in Brazil's southernmost state, Rio Grande do Sul. This is where the Pampas would be. 
In this piece, he depicts an imaginary soundscape through the four seasons. Uh, Brazil is a huge country. So Cervo, I'm going to say Cervo, I'm going to guess that's it. I don't know how Portuguese pronounce that C. Anyway, uh, he chose to associate the seasons with four Brazilian regions, as well as human and natural phenomena associated with each region. This is, as we said, this is the 10th work in his Brazil 2010 series, a set devoted to concertos for soloist and either string, chamber, or symphonic orchestras. And uh, this work was originally written for violin and orchestra. Hmm. The composer specifically made this version for Fabio Brum, the soloist that we're hearing here. The first piece, the first movement, Primavera Amazonica. So this is the Amazon. And then uh, we have a... Uh, in parentheses, Alvorecer, uh, Spring in the Amazonia, Dawn. Broom plays the trumpet in B-flat here and a cornet in B-flat. The trumpet plays a legato theme over a quiet, evocative orchestral accompaniment. Interesting orchestration there with quick, barely audible moving parts. Put on he headphones to hear that or turn it up because it's very, very quiet. The orchestra makes its presence felt at about a minute and 19 seconds with deep brass and strings in the bass end, and a circling figure in the violins. There's a sparkling quality to the circling figure. The trumpet theme starts a dancing dotted rhythm answered by various wind instruments. The slower theme and dancing dotted rhythm theme then a repeat in that order. There's a full stop at 4 minutes and 21 seconds, after which the opening orchestral figure comes back, and we hear the trumpet's legato theme from the beginning. All is compressed now with orchestral detail from that section making its presence felt more quickly and unexpectedly. All in all, this is a calm movement with a sense of well-being to it. The second movement is Inverno Pampeano, Por do Sol, Winter in the Pampas at Sunset. I want to mention, by the way, the four seasons, we think of them spring, summer, autumn, winter. This work presents the four seasons in reverse order. So it's kind of like counterclockwise <laughs> or counter-seasonal. We get uh, spring, winter, autumn, and then summer's last. <laughs> so I wonder why he did that. The French horn is the instrument, the solo instrument on this track. The movement evokes the composer's home region and his home life with one of the recurring motifs representing his wife. Anyway, this starts quietly with pizzicati and a clarinet theme played softly. This theme is taken over by the French horn, played by Broom, which has a much heavier, wider sound than the trumpets we've heard so far. It's quite a startling change, and a, an appealing one, too. Broom plays lyrically on this as well, and that's really impressive. This movement also comes across with a sense of well-being, but it takes a turn towards something more concerning at the two-minute mark, with the French horn going deep into its bottom range. Great sound. And I want to say something. Uh, on the French horn, this is really impressive. This is not an easy instrument to play. It's often considered to be the most difficult of the orchestral instruments. And Broom is playing this as well as a load of other <laughs> instruments. It's really, it's really amazing. After this, the sound lightens in the orchestra, and the French horn comes back with a lighter, open-hearted lyrical melody. He plays through the full range of the French horn in his part, impressively maintaining a solid tone at the bottom end. The movement ends peacefully and with a sense of well-being. Didn't I say that before? I guess so. Yeah. yeah, I guess these all end with a feeling of well-being. The third movement, Otono Pantanero, Aguas, or in English, Autumn in the Pantanal Waters. Here we hear the cornet in F. Uh, the cornet theme flows like the waters in the title. The rhythm sounds like two triplets followed by five eighth notes. 
The orchestra keeps the rhythm up in the first minute as the cornet plays a more sustained lyrical melody. Smooth tone throughout. At a minute and 55 seconds, there's a pause, followed by a more shimmering accompaniment in the strings with a flute playing the melody. This is then taken over by the cornet, starting in its high end. The slowed down accompaniment plays that two triplet theme, only this time it's followed by six eighth notes. There's another pause and it speeds up again with two triplets and only five eighth notes again. So the time signatures here are a little, <laughs> they change quite a bit. They're a little odd. The trumpet eventually picks up this theme and brings it to the end of the piece. The fourth uh, movement, Verao Nordestino, Danzas, uh, Summer in the Northeast, Dances, features the trumpet in C. This starts with a fanfare-like theme in the trumpet, followed by a Brazilian country dance rhythm. The trumpet's lines feature mostly dotted rhythms after this, as it joins in the dance, though it smooths out to straight eighths at times. The orchestra provides most of the dance rhythm. There's some impressive virtuosity heard from the trumpet starting at a minute and 58 seconds, as he plays a continuous rapid line all the way up to 2 minutes and 17 seconds, after which he becomes solemn and lyrical for a moment then resolves his rapid theme at 2 minutes and 40 seconds. The dance rhythm is back in the orchestra at 2 minutes and 50 seconds. There's another pause, after which the trumpet plays solo, a fanfare-type line that keeps moving without a breath or pause. Surely there's circular breathing used here. <laughs> I'd like to know, though. After this cadenza, at about uh, 4 minutes and 12 seconds, a circling fanfare theme comes back in the trumpet, accompanied by light percussion marking the downbeats. And we're heading to the end of the movement, which ends with the orchestral dance rhythm and the trumpet playing rapid, circling figures. Tracks 6 through 14 are a piece by Nicola, Nicola Tescari, born in 1972 in Milan, Italy. This is his trumpet concerto, subtitled Nine Moods, and it was written in 2021. So this piece explores the concept of space that lies between solitude and multitude. It is a soliloquy, according to the booklet, by an individual who, when faced with his own demons and the loneliness of quarantines, peace was conceived during Italy's first COVID-19 lockdown in 2020, which was wow. worse than most of the rest of the world. So yeah, that's and uh, that's our friend Nathan knows all about that if you're listening. Yeah, so. you might want to hear this piece, Nathan. Mm. <laughs> Maybe it'll talk to you. Now, he wonders, the, the composer wonders what there is to protect and what superfluous aspects of existence to be disposed of might be while he's in this state. You could kind of think of him as a uh, sort of a philosophical or like a psychological Marie Kondo in this piece, <laughs> trying to figure out <laughs> what to keep and what to throw away. Anyway, the piece is divided into nine small ruminations on the pandemic experience, uh, fragments of inner reasoning. The composition oscillates between instantaneous intuitions and second thoughts. The trumpet confronts itself with the musician's own isolation. Sometimes this develops into lyricism. Sometimes it provokes a reaction from the other, imaginary, individuals represented by the orchestra who respond to existential or futile questions. Okay, so this is what the booklet notes description of this piece. Now, okay, so this goes through several movements. It's got nine in all, and they're all very short. Moon one, Adagio, is played by the trumpet in C. This starts uh, atmospherically as the har a harmonic cloud rises in the strings. The trumpet plays with a thinner tone here, rather quietly. His lines are rather angular and inconclusive. The orchestra's entire contribution is in providing atmosphere around the trumpet's solo. Mood 2, 
Piumoso, trumpet in C. This is only 29 seconds long. There's a cool trill by the trumpet right at the beginning. He has a lot of them as the orchestra rapidly changes textures. This is over quickly. Mood three, fugato, trumpet in C. The strings start with a quickly bowed repeated note, reappearing throughout the line. We don't hear the trumpet until 38 seconds of this one minute and 18 second movement. Broom picks up that repeated note and plays a few impressive trills as the orchestra does a chaotic march rhythm. Ends on a solid note from the trumpet at the end. Mood four, settimino, liberamente, trumpet in C is the instrument. The title means seven month, and it really usually is used to refer to like a seven month old baby. He's a settimino. Okay, so I don't really know what he's after here with this title. Anyway, maybe seven months locked down. I don't know how what happened in Italy at the time. The trumpet has a mute in this one minute and 42 second movement. The orchestra is winds only, and they keep honking on the same chord, usually on the beat, but occasionally speeding up to eighth notes. The trumpet theme is melodic here. Uh, mood five, agitato, trumpet in C again. The trumpet comes in brightly after the muted movement and rather quickly. This is a short movement at 47 seconds with a lot of activity from the orchestra in the background. Lots of quick changes here. Sixth movement, mood six, inquieto, trumpet in C. Chords of the orchestra are followed by pauses. The trumpet plays a rather jazzy kind of in a rather jazzy style here with bent blue sounding notes. That quick repeated note figure is back and seems to represent a recognizable part of our protagonist's personality in this work. The orchestra starts a spinning figure as the trumpet changes the key on an accented note. He does this a few times, including on the last note at the end. Mood 7, Adagio, Trumpet in C. The trumpet starts us out with long-held notes. They start out smoothly and get a rough tone as they go on. I don't know what you call that when you get that kind of spitting sort of sound out of the trumpet, but that's what he does, if, if you've heard that. I think he's doing mm. flutter tongue here. Flutter tongue, maybe. That would be what it is. Okay, the orchestra accompanies discreetly with occasional figures, occasional long notes and chords. This is the longest movement. It's actually, it's not. It's the second longest movement. It's the longest one we've heard so far in this piece at 2 minutes and 54 seconds. The elements heard at the beginning are heard throughout the movement with different timings and combinations. The orchestra contributes some unexpected timbres at times and ends with some deep euphonium notes. I'm guessing that's a euphonium, the tuba. It sounds uh, very low. Mood 8, Allegro con fuoco. We changed the instrument here. We've heard trumpet in C in the first seven moods. Now we're at a cornet in F. This has a really fantastic shrill-sounding trill from the cornet at the beginning. It's a shake, actually. It's a shake? Yeah. You, you call that a of, shake? Yeah, it's a shake. More, you don't hear these in classical music often. They're more used in, you know, big band jazz uh, ah. charts. It almost sounds like a horse call here. Well, because they used to, shake was the word that they used to use for trill in, in Handel's day. They would call, mm-hmm. they say that, you know, so interesting. Okay, the orchestra has a percussion up front and there are strings in there too. The orchestra starts a carillon-type rhythm at the one-minute mark and starts rapidly moving to higher frequencies afterwards, attracting the cornet to follow, which it does. We end on a high cornet note. Mood 9, the final movement, lento, is a flugelhorn in (laughs) B-flat. Another big dramatic change. This has a darker, slower theme, the flugelhorn stretching its tones out along with the orchestra's mysterious backdrop. This is the longest movement. It's 3 minutes and 34 seconds. There's a marimba in the orchestra here. 
heard providing percussive colors. At a minute and 35 seconds, there's a long pause, after which the flugelhorn comes in quietly with long-breathed tones. We also hear a piano, <laughs> just out of the blue, <laughs> at 2 minutes and 54 seconds. It plays. We think the piece is finished, and there's a pause. Then the flugelhorn comes in for one last ending phrase, which glissandos downwards to end the piece. The next composer, track 15, is Menachem Zur, born in 1942 in Tel Aviv, Israel. This is his work, De Profundus, from 2019. I want to say something. The uh, conductor of this work is of this uh, program is Noam Zur, and uh, we have uh, who's born in the 80s, and Menachem Zur here is born in 1942. And there's no indication either in the booklet or anywhere in the internet of any connection between these two, despite the fact that they have the same last name. Hmm. I'm wondering if they're related. I have no idea. I know, yeah. Yeah, the biographies are all about them only they don't really connect them to anybody else well we could say he has the same last name as the conductor noam zur but any relation we don't know anything about anyway menachem zur's de profundis from 2019 is played on a cornet in c it's inspired by the emotions of prayer and meditative introspection zur tries to portray the trumpet as a sad soul-searching character in this work there are also repeated appearances of a solo piano figure that reflects this mood of loneliness, which take their inspiration from the second movement of Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 23 in A major, K488. 488, that is. Uh, this work is unusual for Nachem Zur, according to the notes, as his works are usually high energy. Not here. He says he occasionally needs to write a pensive slow movement like this one in order to balance his own soul. Yeah, I know the feeling. De Profundis was originally a one-movement piece as presented here, but in 2021, Zur decided to write two more movements and turn De Profundis into the second movement of his concerto for trumpet and orchestra. It can be performed either separately or as part of the concerto, and the work is dedicated to Fabio Brum's teacher, Reinhold Friedrich. It starts out atmospherically with spread-out string harmonies and a slow-moving theme from the cornet. There's a texture change at the two-minute mark as the piano comes in, and we hear winds afterwards. The cornet comes in here with a louder, more emphatic theme. He plays melodically and prayerfully throughout the piece. Outside of the cornet's tone, most of the musical interest comes from the orchestra's constantly changing combination of timbres. The piece ends with a gently struck gong, which kind of makes me wonder, well, De Profundis would be a... There'd be a Christian prayer, but the gong would kind of put me in the mood of Buddhism. And I'm guessing this guy is Jewish. So <laughs> I'm really wondering what's going on here. All right. So anyway, the last piece on this work is uh, track 16 through 19. Again, Gabriele Roberto. We heard him in the opening track. And here we hear his um, Tokyo Suite from 2015. This was commissioned in 2015 by the Japan Philharmonic Orchestra to be premiered at the Tokyo Metropolitan Art Space with Ottaviano Cristofoli as soloist. Cristofoli Cristofoli, I don't know. Anyway, this piece was conceived as an imaginary journey through the many districts and different sides of life that can be found in Tokyo City. The traveler imagined in this piece is a foreigner. Right? It's probably Roberto himself, really. As in Gershwin's An American in Paris, the observer is tempted by the glittering lights and the dizzying, never-ending trade of cars and people. And within this organized frenzy, he is captivated and enchanted by the peaceful quietness of the Buddhist and Shinto temples. 
Then he is suddenly stunned and mesmerized by Harajuku, by the diverse, even grotesque characters disguised in <laughs> costumes, somehow turning everyday life into a permanent carnival. And within this kaleidoscope of emotions, Roberto acknowledges the majesty of Shinjuku high-rises and skyscrapers. First movement, labeled Meccanico. This is the cornet in B-flat. It starts with strings in the high end, playing a minimalist type of syncopated rhythm. It really kind of reminded me of early John Adams. The thematic material is heard in the bass. So the accompaniment is really up top. And it, this kind of um, John Adams thing put me in mind of his work, A Short Ride in a Fast Machine, if anybody wants to give that a listen. The corner can be heard playing thematic material over all of this. It blends in with the rest of the material and can be discerned by its timbre. He doesn't play loudly. By a minute and 21 seconds, the cornet soloist starts playing more phrase-like lines. Some impressive virtuosic playing is heard after the 2 minute and 30 second mark with rapid repeated notes on the cornet. The mechanical rhythm makes this movement feel like it's... The movement itself is, like uh, the title of John Adams' work, a short ride in a fast machine. So this movement actually <laughs> feels like that title, as does John Adams' work of the same name. Anyway, the second movement is uh, Adagio, and this would be the uh, visit to the uh, temples. One of the uh, really amazing things about Japan is how you can be in this really crowded city with a lot of noise, and you can just step through these temple gates or into a shrine, and suddenly it's quiet. It's like all the, all yeah. the noise outside disappears. It's, it's really miraculous. It's something that still amazes me to this day, despite all the time that I've lived here. Anyway, this adagio is played by the flugelhorn in B-flat, and it has a more romantic feel to it with glittering orchestral parts played by the harp, winds, and bass, and a mellow flugelhorn playing a gentle, long-breathed melody. It's very pretty, with an interesting harmonic change at the end of the long phrase. It represents the Buddhist and Shinto temples, peaceful places one can walk into off the busy streets and suddenly be in a different environment. At a minute and 35 seconds, the section changes to something new, but equally romantic. One does wonder what district of Tokyo this movement would represent. <laughs> Although, I guess the, it could be any place. The temple, temples really do do that. At 3 minutes and 26 seconds, the flugelhorn's long solo ends, and we get orchestral winds gently continuing the phrase until the flugelhorn comes back at about 3 minutes and 55 seconds. There's a very brief cadenza for the flugelhorn, where he plays a more emphatic phrase. When it ends, he settles into a gentle line that ends the movement in peace and wonder. So very pretty movement. Hmm. Um, the third movement, scherzando. This is a trumpet in B-flat. And I think um, Roberto takes the uh, scherzando marking literally here. Scherzo in Italian is a joke. And uh, so this movement comes across as comical. It's got a circus atmosphere at around the 32nd note, but has rapid changes of texture. I imagine this is the Harajuku movement, where the soloist is observing the oddities around him. I've been to Harajuku. It's really odd and a strange place. <laughs> the trumpet gets a tambour workout in this movement, with Broom changing his tone in interesting ways to characterize the different sections. A different kind of virtuosity is on display in this movement. And the fourth and final movement, labeled Maestoso, this would be the Shinjuku movement, um, features the trumpet in B-flat, the cornet in B-flat, and the cornet in F. <laughs> Following these changes was a little hard. I think we're hearing the cornet in B-flat first. I don't really don't know, though, as a solo fanfare starts the movement. This has a majestic feel to it, a sense of great size, so Shinjuku. 
Is that the trumpet in B-flat? Possibly. At 2 minutes and 13 seconds, the material suddenly changes to a quiet, magical line with shimmering string chords. I think we're on the cornet again here, where there's a switch from trumpet to cornet at around the 3-minute mark. The line remains awe-inspired. And then the rhythm changes at about 3 minutes and 30 seconds for the majestic approach to the end of the piece. As someone who lives in Japan and has spent time in Tokyo, I have to say, uh, Roberto's interpretation interested me, and I kind of related to it. Anyway, Broom is an amazing player in a lot of ways. First in the traditional virtuosic way with rapid-fire clear notes and quick lines, but also in the different characters he can get out of a single instrument, and the sheer amounts of instruments he plays. <laughs> this is an interesting program that shows off a good deal of his talents, as well as providing us with new works. The recording is clear and well-balanced, Broom's tone always coming through. I think I enjoyed the uh, Gabriele Roberto work sandwiching the program the most, because they're the most straightforward, and the last work speaks of Tokyo. But the interior of the program is intriguing as well, and perhaps more thought-provoking. This is something rather unique for its new music and use of many types of trumpet and trumpet-like instruments. If you're after the unique, this is for you. Yeah, this is my favorite one of the three classical yeah. uh, recordings. Maybe mine too. In a lot of ways, uh, number one for the program, these interesting works, uh, more on that in a moment. And yeah, Broom's just amazing. I mean, he has this huge arsenal of horns <laughs> and he switches them even within one you know, movement of a piece. So it's hard to kind of keep up and Naxos doesn't really help in the way that they kind of get that on the label. But I really like his variety of tones, especially this great ringing. It's kind of a regal trumpet sound that he has, you know, the, your image of a trumpet that you want on a fanfare or some kind of uh, really, you know, soaring lines. He's got that ideal tone, but he also has a whole palette of other kinds of tones and all these instruments that he carefully selects to uh, reach the desired effect. And he can play the French horn really well. And that horn part, that was really digging low in the low register there. It was pretty amazing, that uh, huge uh, fat tome. That was very impressive. Yeah, yeah, he's a real virtuoso. And then some with all these things that he can do on various instruments. But I really like this program, and especially the uh, Roberto compositions. Anyone who says, you know, that contemporary music is hard to grasp or... It's not enjoyable. These two are just easily enjoyable, uh, both pieces, the first one and the uh, Tokyo piece. I think this should be on a lot of you know, live performance programs. It would definitely be a crowd pleaser. Uh, it's easy to follow, enjoyable, all these different contrasts. Yeah, I just thought they were really great. And I like the other pieces as well. They get to show off you know, not just technique, but the different sorts of expression that he can do with all these interesting instruments and different characters of them. So I was constantly drawn in, and there's never a dull moment on here. You're just wondering, what's he going to do next? He's almost like a magician of brass instruments. And uh, yeah, real pleasing program, great trumpet playing, and overall musically satisfying recording. Yeah, I just want to say to classical listeners out there who are, you know, if anybody's afraid of contemporary classical music, um, the the big bad post-war years are over now. Yeah. So um, we, we're getting back to not necessarily like more tonal music, if not, you know, structured music like we had in the classical and romantic eras. I mean, that's mm. that's gone now. But we do get like elements of that. And I think you should... Uh, Come back into the fold and listen to some contemporary <laughs> classical music because a lot of it's very appealing. Yeah, you know the the atonal and the twelve tone music of the 
20th century is really over at this point, more or less. All right. We're going to go into the jazz section, staying with trumpet. And, you know, I've got a lot of recordings that are large ensemble or big band, too. And I've been thinking, oh, I should do a big band episode. And then I realized when we decided we were going to do trumpet, hey, I've got enough trumpet with big band to do just that <laughs> for an episode. So I said, let's go for it. And so we've got three recordings with trumpet and big band, two of which feature uh, young trumpeters who are doing some interesting things here. And the first one is someone who we heard back in episode 36, Mirror, Mirror. And his wow. recording actually made our best of list for 2021. And that's, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, the young Scottish trumpeter, Sean Gibbs. And here he is with his second recording, Confluence on Ubuntu label and trumpet and big band here. Yeah, very different than his first album. Very different from his first album, although yeah. his playing is uh, hasn't changed a lot other than maybe matured a bit. He, let's see, graduated from Birmingham Conservatory in 2015, so he's still quite young, and he studied with a trumpet player who we heard on the podcast also after, Percy Persglub. We heard with trombonist Dave Sear, and his playing really impressed us. And so that was his debut album, and I really liked his sort of rooted style in the post-bop tradition, you know, he takes us back to some earlier players that he's obviously digested well, especially in his articulation and phrasing, but he has a mature style, and he did really nice uh, writing and arranging on that album too. And so I was eager to hear what he comes up with next, and now he's got this album of big band arrangements and original tunes as well. So he's here playing most of the solos on trumpet, uh, he's got some other trumpet players in the section, Tom Walsh, James Davison, James Copas, who's a pretty well-known player as well. And he actually gets a solo spot in here that Gibbs shares with him on flugelhorn. And Freddie Gavita. And we've got trombone section, Tom Donette, Kieran McLeod, Richard Foote, and Richard Henry on bass trombone. A sax section, George Millard on alto and soprano, James Gardner Bateman on alto sax, Helena Kay on tenor saxophone, Riley Stone, Lonergan on tenor sax, and Chris Maddock on berry sax. In the rhythm section, Rob Brockway on piano, Colum Gourlay on bass, and Jay Davis on drums. All the compositions are by Sean Gibbs, and he's also produced this recording. This was recorded in May of 2022. Uh, recorded and mixed by John Prestage. And this came out November 25th of 2022. So we're going to start out with track one, Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Gibbs starts this one out by himself over the rhythm section with a 16-bar melody. It's happy sounding, a little bluesy tinge to it. Uh, the rhythm is kind of like a 60s post-bop feel. It's the clear and bright trumpet sound that I remember from his debut. Trumpets and trombone come in with an 8-bar thickly arranged melody section, and then it's back to Gibbs for some more melody lines into a solo. Shows nicely relaxed phrasing with space between his melodic ideas, and he mixes it up with double-time lines as well. Trombone lines come in for backing behind him, and then the saxes 
over in the left channel uh, when you're listening come in uh, the saxes get a section solo and then the brass kick in as well there's some great low brass trombone and barry sax notes with the trumpet screaming above into some shakes as we were talking about before shakes the saxes work out of that into exchanges with brass and a barry sax and bass line uh, that things build up over again into an alto sax solo from James Gardner Bateman. Uh, listen to the funky bass lines underneath from Gourlay. <laughs> Gardner Bateman gets funky and angsty, which is a big contrast to Gibbs' kind of happy-sounding solo. Uh, the bass and berry sax line and brass come in to push him to a big finish. I just want to say, by the way, uh, about his tone, I called it clean and smooth. I can't, I really couldn't get away from that word clean with yeah, him. It's a nice, it's, nice clean tone. Uh, more on that and some influences I picked up ooh. as we go along. Okay. Track two, New Beginnings. And here, uh, it's over to James Copas on Flugelhorn. Gourlay adds light bouncy bass figures below him, and Davis plays light Latin-y cymbals, and the sax section snakes lines under the flowing flugelhorn. Things get rhythmically interesting with the bass berry, and maybe it's also a bass trombone in there doubled up on the line, uh, and a simpler sax line on top of it to come in. And the brass join on top of the saxes for a couple repeats, really building it up, and it's back to more flowing flugel lines from Copus. Here's some nice butterfly fluttery figures. They sound good on flugelhorn. Uh, really appealing. It moves into some more agile and high register blowing. Soft trombone backing, and then sax lines come in. The trumpets have a section exchange of lines with the saxes, and the bass line comes back from before over piano lines from Brockway, and they vamp out on it uh, for Jay Davis to get some drum soloing time. Everyone stacks on top of that, building it up for Copus to flutter out of that into a soft landing over piano and cymbals. I thought this was a very nice arrangement. Track three, Gibbet some more that's uh, g-i-b-b funky one here it's got a 16 bar intro with brass bass and low instruments alternating syncopated blasts with swinging bluesy sax lines and davis mixing up the drum beats underneath helena k on tenor sax and gibbs on trumpet get the melody line together with bass and piano continuing the syncopated rhythm figure we heard in the horns in the intro there's a cool little descending trombone figure before the a section of the melody repeats then big band blasts into a modulating b and C sections. Then we're off over walking bass for a medium swing and a tenor sax solo from K. She's relaxed and swings well, getting some cool low register tones. When they hit the modulated sections, the trombones have great swinging lines backing her up. And then Gibbs is next. He's got a fun puckish kind of uh, playing lines on here. It sometimes reminds me of the great trumpeter Clark Terry. Uh, it's kind of a unique style we don't hear uh, very often these days. Uh, nice melodies and little bluesy tastes in his playing as well. The sexes come in for the backing this time and then carry on for some really swinging section lines with big brass hits. Davis gets a drum break back into the intro and a run through the melody sections again. Funky and fun tune. Yeah. Track four, Tomorrow Will Come. This one is a ballad featuring a longing trombone melody from Tom 
done it. Uh, now, only the trombone can get that lonesome kind of sound. He starts it out with an eight-measure solo melody line over the rhythm section. The saxes take over with a suave section of swelling lines and some higher trumpet on top into some pickup phrases into the next section from Dunnett that really ring out. He gets soft and fluffy soon again with more solo trombone. And he turns up the energy with some sliding notes that get a nice edge on the tone as he builds it up. The sexes come back with another section. I like their unified pulsing vibrato that they get almost acting as one instrument. The trumpets come in and build it up over uh, lower hits from the other sections and then really make it soar up high. On the release of that, there's a cool soft solo trumpet figure underneath that Donette picks up on to carry on longingly over even rhythmic piano figures. Uh, the trumpets add soft buzzing lines with harmon mutes added as it unwinds into some final fluffy trombone figures from Donette. Track five is Juggling Act. Trumpets scream from the start on the 16-bar intro over lower syncopated band figures. The saxes have a swinging and syncopated four-bar transition, nicely punctuated by Davis. Then Gibbs gets a solo 16-bar melody section over bouncy rhythmic bass figures. Things get swinging over walking bass with trumpet lines, then joined by sax for another 16 measures. Gibbs is back for more melody, now over the swing. Uh, the saxes are back for another swinging solo uh, into a four-bar drum break, and then the transition section we heard earlier. And then Gibbs is up for a solo, first over the bouncy section, then switching to swing. His nice snap and his swinging melodic lines. When it goes back to the even bounce feel, the trombones have syncopated backing lines, and they alternate between the rhythmic feels. Next time, the sax is coming in for backing. Davis has a drum break into a full band section with the trumpets blasting it out, and the saxes get some more swinging on their own before exchanges with the brass. It's a really exciting arrangement. Davis gets another break and things come down soft for Brockway to get a delicate and rhythmic piano solo. Gourley has the bass broken up nicely underneath him. And there's an alto sax line over the piano and then a trumpet line added to it. And it ends with Brockway's pretty final solo piano ideas. We're going to end with a great title, Hungover Moments of Clarity, <laughs> which I've had some and some not so clear. Yeah. By the way, life. Gibbs actually saw a quote by him. He says, this reflects the emotional roller coaster of a savage hangover. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you swear, you're Don't, never going to do it again. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've all been there, haven't we? Okay. Anyway, Brockway starts this one out with slow ringing syncopated chords for four measures. Barry Sachs and bass get a melody line for eight bars. It is fun syncopated movement and a happy mood. There's a little break at the end of the phrase for a trombone to take over with a simple melody line with some nice slides. And then we get hit with a wall of sound of that bass and Barry line, a sax section and soaring trumpets. Trombones float out of that with great thick harmonized lines, and Riley Stone Longerian gets some fluttering started between phrases and continues on soloing, and here he's really getting some of that Pharaoh Sanders type of spiritual sound vibe going on. Gourley's bass keeps a steady pulse as Stone Longerian digs deep and honks it out. Uh, the horns add in with lines and work up to full power after a break for a sax honk. The trombone moving line under the trumpets is great here as well. And there's a huge dynamic change to a soft, sultry, swelling sax section over piano. The other horns join in with soft, swelling, long lines, and it gets a kind of like tower of power 
arrangement on big band steroids type of sound. <laughs> now, Brockway takes it out on relaxed rhythmic piano over bouncy bass uh, to end it softly. It is a really great and fun arrangement. And that's it. It's a really short recording at uh, 33 minutes, but there's a lot of stuff packed in here. Really nice variety of original tunes, uplifting melodies, great arranging. We get a mix of rhythmic feels, and the solos are passed around nicely. Gibbs even giving the flugel solo feature for Copus. I really enjoyed Riley Stone-Lonergan's tenor on the last track. Gibbs sounds great again. He's always energetic and happy. His style recalling trumpet players from the 50s and 60s with a bright, clear sound and interesting articulation. And I'm just looking forward to what he does next. Yeah, I thought this was a shame that it was so short, really, you know, because I was really enjoying it as well. Mm. But then again, I mean, it must have been a lot of work for Gibbs to put this together. He wrote all the tunes. Yeah, arranging is hard work. He arranged, and he produced the recording, too. So he did a lot of work Mm. on this. Okay, so this is a very, um, the the approach is very restrained, I thought, and especially when we compare it to the John DeVersa album that you're going to talk about <laughs> later, which is really the exact opposite in approach to this one. This particular album, it's good and highly listenable. I would have liked to hear Gibbs and his band step out more, maybe expand the solos, try out more ideas, make the tracks longer. They're actually very compact the way they are now. There's an entire section of the brass that's relegated to the left speaker. And I wish it weren't panned so hard into that channel. I understand he wants the, the kind of hocketing quality between left and right channel, but I think you can get a little bleed between the two channels and still have that effect. Anyway, I prefer to hear that as their location. So, you know, mm. in, you know you'd hear a bit of it in the right channel as well. Um, the tracks were relatively short, as you might imagine, but no quibbles about the music itself and the musicality of Gibbs and the band. It's a really good listen. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just got this real kind of positive vibe. Lots of sort yeah. of uh, younger jazz players get in with this dark leaning type of explorations, but that's not in his character. And I just like the, you know, upbeat mood that he creates with his solos. And he has a lot of uh, mature restraint in his playing. He doesn't overplay and he leaves lots of space yeah. uh, connecting ideas nicely. So. Yeah, I found this playing to be very stylish. You know, yeah. it's, you don't hear enough of that these days. I think yeah, it was really yeah. nice. All right. Next, a uh, young trumpet player from Chile, Juan Pablo Salvo. And uh, well, he's come up with the creative title, Big Band. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that's what he's got here on the Direct Music Collective label as it's listed. Short and sweet. Short and it's sweet. Good, it's a good title. Came out December <laughs> 16th. He's 23 years old and studied classical trumpet from his youth at the Enrique Soto School of Music. He's got an album from 2017, Mensaje, which he released at the age of 18. Well, with the Vertigo label. And he also had a big band experience with the Conchali big band. I guess it's a well-known band in Chile. And maybe that led to him being inspired to make his own compositions and arrangements here. It was a bit of a chore to find the the, uh, credits (laughs) for this album. I did a lot of searching in Spanish to find them. And there's a few confusing things about that that I'll um, refer to as we go along. Because uh, this recording you can find on streaming, there are alternative takes to several of the tracks which don't show up under the album listing. 
but they are available on streaming as well under his name. But the the credits are mixed in together with different musicians here. Yeah. Anyway, I'll try to cover the main ones. So we've got Juan Pablo Salvo on trumpet four, uh, which is often the solo chair in a big band, and he's got all the compositions and directions uh, for this recording as well. Diego Oyarzun on first trumpet, Italo Viveros trumpet two, Nicholas Astorga on trumpet three, trombones, Jose Moraga on first trombone, Alfredo Tauber trombone two, Marcelo Maldonado trombone three, Pablo James trombone four, saxes, David Espinosa alto one and flute, Cesar Vidal alto two, Francisco Vega tenor one, Isaias Zamorano, tenor two and soprano, and Pablo Hara, baritone sax. Rhythm section, Camilo Aliaga, piano, Felipe Ovalle, double bass, Edson Maquiera, drums, and Florencia Novoa, who's listed here under rhythmic, but uh, I think this is the guest vocalist for the ninth track. And there's a whole uh, list of guest players. Uh, Augustine Moya on tenor sax solos on track one and two. Jonathan Gatica on the alternative track for Andenis. Bakunas Sama on piano track three and seven. Hugo Naranjo on piano track nine. Francisco Savedra on guitar on the alternative track for XDD. Christian Oriana on double bass track nine. Luciano Gonzalez. No instrument list to track five. I think hmm. it's guitar. Sebastian Gonzalez, double bass, track one. Hernan Velerde, cushion, track eight and nine. And Natalia Quintana, also extra percussion, track eight. And it, the album was mixed and mastered by Ricardo Hinojosa. All right, let's get to these tracks. Track one, XDD. It's a short drum intro that leads to a rising full band line at a fast swing. Then we get a minor modal melody line in unison on a single alto sax, trombone, and trumpet over bass and piano chord hits. The trombones and Barry sax join in on those hits, making it heavy and ominous. There are a few four-bar solo exchanges from sax, trumpet, and trombone. A full band descending line leads into a trumpet solo from Salvo, and he blows intense phrases of modal lines over chugging bass and horn backings that build up into syncopated hits. Next is an alto solo by Cesar Vidal with more swelling horn backing lines, then a tenor sax solo by Augustine the backing lines are getting busier with harder swing phrasing. Uh, Machiara gets a drum solo to beat it up intensely. Then we go back into the unison melody line from the beginning. I repeat with some simultaneous improvisations of the horns on top of the line into more simultaneous improvisation up to that ominous descending full band line. There's some drum fills to a final full band ascending line that ends it. And it's a pretty intense start to this recording. And as I said, there are alternate takes of this track and track seven with different soloists referred to in the credits. And they're not listed under this album. If it comes out on a CD, if it is on a CD, they may be on there. Uh, but you can find those tracks if you look under Salvo's name. I checked. They're on Spotify, Apple Music, and Deezer. Track two, Vidas de Plasticina. Change of mood here with an eight-bar rhythmic piano chord intro in six beat meter bass and drums join in halfway through and saxes get a breezy melody line laid on top of the piano figures and trombones get 
interjections on the fifth beat. It's a nice arranging combination. The piano changes to rising figures underneath, and the saxes continue on building to a full band arrangement where the meter changes to five beats. Each section has different moving lines, with a lot going on rhythmically under the longer trumpet lines. Then we get a kind of silky-toned tenor sax solo, I think it's Moya again, over rhythmic snapping bass figures, still in a 5-4 meter. There are full band backing lines that build up as Moya gets more intense with double time lines. Then it gets quiet, down to just the piano again, bringing us back to six beats, but with a little extra skip in the rhythm compared to the intro. The piano gets into rising lines like we heard under the saxes before. A single trumpet and sax float long lines over the top, and that builds into more parts entering with high trumpet lines soaring to an intense ending with the trumpet really screaming. Track three, Parque San Borja. This is a short, less than two minutes, pretty waltzing tune with a warm and soft trumpet and flute melody line working over warm trombone counterlines. It then fills out with more horns. Underneath, there's a free-flowing, high-registered, tinkling piano solo from Vakunasama, who is a guest on this track. It's very lush and, again, nice arranging. Track four, Diego en Cinco which I believe means arrived in five. And we're back to a big sound here, but it's not in a five beat meter, it's in four. Hmm. Uh, and we get a big full band entrance for eight bars with a forward driving syncopated line. Salvo solos for short sections, just over drums, alternating with the full band sections. As the lines move in sync, you get the effect of a big wall of sound. A new groove sets with some ostinato one chord figures in piano and bass and some clicky percussion. Then a full band arrangement builds up with sections entering in layered lines that get swinging really hard. Salvo gets a solo next over thumping bass figures and a heavy drum groove. He's working modal and chromatic ideas in a very modern way. His sound is always warm and full though. Backing horn lines come in with syncopated phrases accented by the rhythm section and salvo phrases to match the rhythmic push. The lines break up, leaving him some more solo spots over just the drums, and then short exchanges with the horns that then take a final push with a big line to the end. It's an interesting dialogue type of arrangement between trumpet and big band. Track 5, Vertigo. And Vertigo, indeed, with a 5-4 meter that has an accent on the upbeat of beat 3, making you lose your balance as you listen along. Bass, guitar, and piano work the dizzying rhythmic figures over cymbals. Flowing horn lines enter over the figures and build up to a section of thumping 5-4 bass groove under an alto sax solo from Cesar Vidal. Here's a searing tone and fluid lines. Syncopated backing lines build up from berry sax and the bones and get more layers. A new flowing line with sax and harmon muted trumpet floats into a horn-only section with moving parts into a return of the rhythm section and a round-toned electric guitar solo. I'm not sure who's playing it, but Luciano Gonzalez is listed as a guest on track five, but doesn't say the instrument. Uh, the horn lines build up and then over the guitar solo lines continuing on to the end. Track six is called Polia, a warm and rich slow brass chorale with little pauses for the tones to reverberate. On the final held note, drums kick into a tempo with a bass and low piano hits. A trumpet and tenor sax take a swinging minor melody line and then the sax section takes over. Next the trumpets get a line, back to the saxes and then 
line exchanges building up to the full band, and Salvo comes out of that with a trumpet solo over thick full band syncopated backing lines to start, and then just the rhythm section. The minor modes change below, and he works speedy lines with really thick tone as the horns build up behind him and then leave him over the drums for sections. He seems to like this kind of free flight environment where he's you know, just over the drums and has a lot of harmonic freedom. Uh, after some final exchanges with band sections, it gets quieter with the band working a darker syncopated line with solo harmon muted trumpet lines. The band builds up more to a final short solo trumpet flurry and then a big final minor band chord. Track seven, Andenis. This one starts with a sax section part with even eighth notes that makes it feel kind of clock-like in movement, although the meter isn't clear yet. Drums kick in and it takes on a 3-4 meter and the brass adds lines as the horns all smooth out. It thins down to saxes and then builds up some more again into solo piano section from Vakunosama, who we heard in track three. He plays ringing right-hand lines and softer rhythmic left-hand figures with cymbal accents around him. The drums kick up a stronger beat with pulsing acoustic bass, and he becomes more animated into the higher register. Backing horn lines swell in, and Salvo emerges from them with a flowing trumpet solo. Here the modal chords change more frequently, and he connects interesting and tense ideas over them. Then things get really rhythmic, with a section of funky phrase exchanges between trombones and low saxes. The trumpets add another line on top, and then a busy sax line gets added. A syncopated berry sax bass trombone and bass line with drum accents after that works into some drum soloing from Machiera. And after a pause, he kicks it into a section of sax lines that build to flowing full band lines that continue with movement without the rhythmic section to the end. With a final trombone pickup note to the last chord and just a few piano tinkles added there. Track eight is cicatriz, which I think means scar. Hmm. This one starts with a clean-toned unison line of trumpet and sax over Latin percussion. Listen to the rhythm, and you'll find out it's in 11-8 time. It's not a yeah. meter you hear every day. I felt, I felt like it had an Indian quality to it, mm. too. Yeah. yeah. After eight measures, another sax voice gets added, and that works into a short section with some improvised soprano sax, trumpet, and trombone improvisations over each other. Another unison line continues and gets counterlines building to a bigger full band arrangement with more syncopation. That leads to a trombone solo from Alfredo Tauber. He starts it in the warm middle register and builds it up from simple figures. Listen to the funky bass and piano ostinato below, which goes in a halftime feel over the meter, so it actually takes double the amount of beats to cycle. Tauber gets more motion and includes some long high cries and low scoops over horn backing lines that flow in and build up. Next is some more Saxon trumpet unison line, this time with trickier fast figures outlining more harmonic changes. Tauber returns for more trombone lines as the full band arrangement swells around him with long lines and syncopated short phrases. A trumpet joins in some improvisations with the trombone, and the sound is getting really thick. And then things quiet down to softer tones and leave the percussion to end it with a few final bars. And we end up with Honestidad. Honesty. Hmm. This one is a, a composed piece of less than three minutes with no solos. It's rich sounding and based around a five-note rubato melody figures of trumpet and voice, as the credits say, Forencia Novoa Canto. So you'll hear that the trumpet and voice are really unified here. It sort of gives me 
a Close Encounters of the Third Kind <laughs> image, <laughs> if anyone's old enough to remember the notes that the aliens played from the uh, Steven Spielberg movie, that kind of five-note figure. and then Yeah, once heard, never forgotten. Yeah. Oh, boy, I still remember it today. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when the voice and trumpet reach the final notes of phrases, the horns and bass add rich chords around them as it progresses with space between the phrases. It becomes a big wall of sound midway through, and then the phrases get faster, pushing ahead to a big climax at about two minutes. It comes down to a pretty resolving final chord with tinkling rising piano figures underneath, a very calming and settled ending to the recording. So, Sov is a young trumpet player, very talented from Chile. He's got a big warm sound and plays with intensity. Uh, you can also check out his previous recording on streaming, Chinko. His solos impress me, but everything here is very modern and modal, so I'd like to hear him on some more standard jazz material as well, just to see what he does in that kind of setting. His compositions on this recording are interesting, covering more subtle moods to big swinging and Latin themes with different rhythmic feels and some tricky meters thrown in too. The arranging is excellent, particularly the rich brass chorale arranging stands out as something we don't always hear in big bands these days, so I'll be interested in watching to see what he comes up with next okay so yeah like you i thought the uh the performing was great it was some really hot playing on this album yeah um it, it was high energy very exciting i like the uh big fat drum and bass sound which really impacted and often they'll accent notes in the solos and i really like the way that uh one or two instruments will get a chance to solo on a track rather than have everybody take a turn. So you'd kind of, you know, right. have to wait a few tracks to hear certain soloists. It kept me interested. I, I was uh, interested in what I wanted, was going to hear on every track. Uh, most of the record was really exciting. There were some intriguing approaches as well. I thought that the recording kind of left a little to be desired, though, especially in the high end. It has like hmm. a, a kind of uh, edge in the low end, which I liked. The bass drum and the bass were really thumping. But the higher end, everything is heard like in the lower harmonic range, and the higher notes tend to get lost in a kind of murkiness in this high end. Hmm. Um, the bass end comes through strong, but the higher instruments have strong lower end harmonics. And he may very well have intended that, but I would have liked a clearer hmm. recording. Um, I don't want to make turn people off of the album with that because it's really hot playing and it's really uh, well worth a listen, I would say. I, I did enjoy it. Yeah, unique kind of approach to these tunes by a really young player too so i think he's got a knack for big band arranging and uh yeah, yeah let's see what he does next yeah, i'm looking for that high end still i'm still not old <laughs> enough for my high end the high end hearing to be completely still gone can hear those high hertz uh, yeah. hertz. all right we're going to round out the performance of uh, trumpets tonight not with a youngster but a veteran uh, trumpet yeah. player who's got uh, quite a resume here. I'm just going to have to <laughs> try to skip over it because could probably uh, you know fill up the rest of the hour with everything right. he's done. I want to say this is always amazing to me how much ground these people cover in their careers. It's yeah. amazing to me, you know. We're speaking of the trumpeter John DeVersa. And, and band leader. And band leader. And right. his uh, release, latest release here, Live at Catalina's Volume 2. Two that came out January thirteenth, mm. so it's fresh off the presses here, and on his uh, diversifications publications. Good little name. Yeah, spell D A V E R. That's pretty cool. <laughs> right, and so Diversa, he's the son of Jay Diversa, who was a trumpet player for Stan Kenton 
and also a mm-hmm. LA studio musician. So he had uh, a good environment uh, to grow up in around music. And now he's a composer, arranger, producer, band leader, educator too. He's a multiple Grammy Award winner and also other nominations, uh, lots of other awards too. In addition to being a performer, he's also an academic professor and chair of studio music and jazz at the University of Miami's Frost School of Music. Originally came from Los Angeles, and as I mentioned, grew up in a musical household. He sang as well as playing various instruments and started playing trumpet at the age of 11. He's got a Bachelor of Arts degree at UCLA in music composition and performance. He went back to L.A. getting a Master's of Fine Arts in Jazz Studies at the California Institute of the Arts in 2006 and a Doctorate of Musical Arts degree in Jazz Studies at University of Southern California in 2009. That's a lot of studying (laughs) of music there. Now, he founded this John Diversa Progressive Big Band in 1996, and the first volume of Live at Catalina's came out in 2000. So... Here we are. Well, this is a yeah. long uh, gap between these. Long stuff. gap. But um, yeah, I'm glad you did it because we've got a, a really nice recording here. Now, if you want to check out some of his other recordings, 2017, the John Diversa Big Band Kaleidoscope Eyes Music of the Beatles. Yeah, I've got that one. Three Grammy nominations uh, for Best Large Ensemble, Best Arrangement Instrumental, and Best Arrangement Vocals or Acapella. He's also got 2019. American Dreamers, Voices of Hope, Music of Freedom. Oh, I heard that one too. That's pretty yeah. Yeah. Oh, you <laughs> know that one okay too, here. right? Yeah. And 2019, mm. he was a musical director and co-producer for the album Shoulder to Shoulder, Centennial Tribute to Women's Suffrage by the Karen Allison Sextet. 2020, he directed, co-produced, and played on Regina Carter Freedom Band's Swing States, Harmony in the Battleground. 2021, his most recent one before this, All Without Words, Variations Inspired by Lauren. It's an orchestral trumpet concerto played by the John Diversa Jazz Orchestra, composed by his friend Justin Morrell. So he's really busy and quite a resume. I just skimmed over some highlights there. Anyway, here he's the director, conductor, arranger, playing trumpet, and also the EVI, EV, electronic valve instrument, which we'll hear on one track on this recording. And I couldn't find any of the credits for this album online, so I wrote to John, and he replied to me right away, and uh, sent me yeah. a list of credits and said he was That's eager really to nice check out Thanks, John. the podcast. Yeah, so I'll be sending this off to him as soon as we publish it. And the rest of the band here on Woodwinds, not just saxes, but there's uh, some flutes, clarinets, bass clarinet on this recording too. Kim Richmond, favorite of mine. <laughs> yeah, Bill Perkins, Tom Peterson, Vince Trombetta Jr., Jeff Driscoll, Jennifer Hall. Trombetta, that would be a good name for a trombone player, though. It, it would be. Yeah. <laughs> on, you got to wonder what, if his here. parents kind of had that planned for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on trumpets, George Graham, Glenda Smith, Ron King, and Matt Neighbors. Trombones, Alex Ilis, Bill Booth. Charlie Morias and George Thatcher. Rhythm section, Justin Morrell, guitar, Todd Sikafus on bass, and John Guerin on drums. Now, unfortunately, I don't know the individual soloists for the tracks because he didn't send me uh, that info. I'll just assume that Diversa gets all the trumpet <laughs> solo spots here. Yeah, there are a lot of trumpet. I don't know. I bet I bet he passes them around because it sounds be. it sounds like 
there's a trumpet solo followed by another trumpet solo, and it's a different sound. Yeah, so I'm just going to. Um, I don't have any. no way of knowing really names yeah. for that. And the final yeah. track has a different list of players, but there's more to say about that. So uh, I'll in- introduce those names and uh, before we get there. Anyway, this was recorded uh, live April 4th to 6th in the year 2000. Uh, by Tally Sherwood at Catalina's Bar and Grill in Hollywood, California, and mixed by Justin Morrell, the guitarist, uh, here at Emergency Room Recording. Masterings by Bradford Craig, and producer is also John DeVersa, and he's composed and arranged all the music here. And it would have been a good night to be out to see some live music. Yeah, not only uh, not only because of the band, but because of the bar and grill, too, places <laughs> I, a place I love to be. Right. <laughs> All right, we're going to start out with track one, Fast and Direct, which this track and the next several tracks are a tribute to D. Barton Sweet. That's in parentheses here. So who was D. Barton? He was a trombonist, drummer, and composer for Stanket and Big Band. So there's probably some connection with uh, Diverse's father. But he also composed a lot for movies. And if you're wondering, well, what would that be? Clint Eastwood heard his music, and he wrote scores for movies such as Play Misty for Me, High mm. Plains Drifter, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. It's a great one there. Every Which Way But Loose and others. Uh, and then also contributed for Dirty Harry, Magnum Force. And he worked with uh, Frank Sinatra, Rolling Stones, Tony Bennett, even John Lennon and others. And he helped Jimmy Webb uh, write the composition of MacArthur Park. Uh, so a pretty big uh, one of my one career. of my least favorite songs. Yeah, it? It's not, a, <laughs> not one of my. It's favorite a little too. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm a big Jimmy Webb fan, though. Yeah. So I, I do love Jimmy Webb. So. Yeah. Anyway, this tune starts the tribute uh, here, and fast and swingy it is. Uh, getting started with a 16 bar section of trumpets and trombones, uh, two note figures with gaps after them, kind of push it ahead right from the start. The next short section swings hard with trumpet lines, swirling sax lines entering the mix over syncopated trombone blasts. We hear the opening idea again into some really exciting rising trumpet scream lines. And then DeVersa gets started underneath on his solo with some ripping lines of his own. He's blowing some really agile stuff on the trumpet, fast 16th note lines and chromatic figures. The band has interjections of huge backing blasts and whipping figures <laughs> going against the rhythm that are synced with the drums. It's really cool. And I like how he syncs his solo lines up with some of those band figures. The band builds from bones up around him as he continues on with cool breaks to finish up before more trumpet screams into a gutsy tenor sax solo that swings hard and gets all the angst out with wailing cries, all while getting the same band backing treatment that we got on the trumpet solo before. Then it's time for a full band buildup, starting with some clipped sax phrases over one-note bouncing bass figures punctuated with falling trombone blasts. The sax lines get fast, smooth, and swinging, and then the brass stack on top with trumpets ascending way up high with ridiculous gliss figures. And then we get smacked with those whipping hits again uh, a few times, interspersed with smoking sax lines into the opening section two-note figures again, first on the trombones, then saxes, as things come down to build up with syncopated trumpet blasts to a final scream and the approval of the crowd. And you couldn't ask for a more exciting arrangement of a tune to get right. things started. Yeah, this yeah. is really happening. Yeah. <laughs> 
the second movement of the tribute to D. Barton's suite is called Camels. Drum Tom started out for four bars of a medium slow beat that get, has a processional feel to it. Guitar adds a rhythmic ostinato figure and gets joined by bass clarinet. Uh, they keep it going for the next section where sax and flutes get added for longer notes and moving lines on top, creating some harmonic tension while we zone out on this kind of modal mood, imagining camels uh, coming into the tent here. Uh, those lines end. It keeps going around, this time with brass hits. Then we get some fun breaks with trombone and bass clarinet working lines together. Starts building up with trombone lines, then saxes, then trumpets. And there's a cool counter line with flute and bass clarinet interplay with the sections and little solo woodwind interjections as well. The field changes up for a bit, getting lighter with some trombone figures and woodwind trills, building into synced horn lines with high trumpet lines. Then it's time for a trombone solo with really funky phrasing, snappy and agile slide work. Some really good bone chops on display here. Wish I knew exactly who it was. But uh, swelling woodwind notes and then crazy brass syncopated hit backing parts come in to cheer him on. And next we get an alto sax solo, starting out with some more purposefully lazy and slurred lines, and then they get more flowing and sassier and bluesy ideas coming along, but leaving lots of space to build anticipation. The sax gets the same cool backing lines as the bone, and then things come down to the toms and bass with the original rhythmic figures for a trombone sectional solo. The bass trombone is really fat in the sound there. I like this track a lot, but I couldn't get past the fact that there's a bass clarinet in it. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I'm now associating bass clarinets with camels because of the Jean-Marc Foles record we heard where he's oh, like right. Lawrence of Arabia on the right, cover. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting he's, parallel, yeah. Yeah. What, what is it with bass clarinets and camels? Perhaps Mr. Diversican. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, it's starting to implant mm. itself in my mind now. Yeah, Jean-Marc Foltz, Indigo, that's what we're referring Indigo, to. Indigo, yeah, it was um, all Duke Ellington. Yeah, uh, that was a great record year, from last, last year. Last year, yeah. Yeah. Right, anyway, from there, the trumpets come in with big blasts, and saxes and guitar have some flowing lines through sections of those syncopated hits we heard before, and then that building section we heard previously before the trombone solo into a final syncopated line and a blast to end it. It's a really rhythmically fun piece. Track three also number three of the tribute to D. Barton Sweet, Missing Platelets. Platelets, platelets. Yeah, platelets. They're, they're kind of yeah. like blood, yeah, something yeah, in your yeah. blood or something. Blood. Yeah, yeah. Solo trumpets start for this one with lots of space and then a drone note, which sounds like it's on sax, is added. It must be done with circular breathing to be able to keep this uh, tone oh. being extended there. And the... Uh, Trumpet here, Diverse is really channeling some Miles Davis with the squeezed high tones. I've never really heard this exact kind of playing except on sketches of Spain, uh, the mm. way to kind of pinch that note. As he works uh, similarly cool modal phrases, uh, he gets some shorter syncopated ideas going, and that's the signal for the cymbals to dance in at just past a minute and a half. The trumpet's getting really animated and playing exciting rhythmic stuff. There's a different drone now. Uh, maybe it's a high bowed bass tone. Then the drums join in too. And the band comes along first with some low trombone lines, stacking with trumpets and saxes for a wall of sound over thumping bass as the trumpet solo finishes up. 
Drums kick into a new trombone, swinging line over bouncy walking bass. Barry Sax has a cool interjection as well, and the trumpets and saxes get in the mix with lines of their own. And there's a lot going on building up to a Barry Sax solo. And right from the start, the rhythmic phrasing is intense with an edge on the tone, a great arrangement of horn lines to back and cheer the solo on. Things come down with a busy drum beat and one note bass uh, for trumpet to get some more trumpet soloing uh, with low trombone lines and then trumpet hits and the whole band to cheer him on again. Uh, they come out of that with more hard swinging sax lines into a full band buildup. A solo trumpet and sax line gets a section to drums building up to an ending part with some solo trumpet squeals and improvising up to a series of horn blasts and a final scream to end it. Track four, Strawberry Margarita. One of my favorites. Yeah, there you go. And it's a fast samba tune here with throbbing bass. Uh, starts with some silky sax melody lines. Trombones add in with some cool counter lines. And then the trumpets get a melody line themselves before things get busy with lots of horn section interaction. The next section really builds the tension with cross rhythm pulsing exchanges between the saxes and brass. It gives the feeling of like gasping for breath, uh, <laughs> which they might be after playing this uh, at this tempo. And it's time for another trumpet solo. Here, the uh, trumpet keeps it melodic, flowing over the fast tempo with nice phrasing, and then some final screaming lines for a climax as the band builds around the trumpet. And I like how the guitar line in the arrangement is working with the saxes. We get that tension building section again into a sax solo with an interesting dry tone, but nice edge and cool boppy phrasing figures. The band builds it up around and to another climax. Next to guitar solo, over soft syncopated band hits, Starts with shorter rhythmic guitar ideas, then gets more connected and flowing with nice melodic ideas and a warm tone. And then it's time for more full band arrangement, guitar working the lines together. There's really nice interplay and exchanges between the horn sections, and I thought it's going to press on to another big finish, but no. Instead, Saxon trumpet gets some final solo time over a big drum beat and rhythmic sax interjections. So, very exciting Latin Samba yeah. type piece here. Track five, Moments of Reality. This is a slow solo trumpet melody with a nice ringing tone and also a nice vibrato. Over first, just one trombone with longer notes that creates some interesting harmonic tension and release here. Then more trombones join in, making really rich chords. And I really enjoyed this arrangement with the lowest part of the trombone uh, moving on its own. Drums kick in with the bass after about a minute, and the rich flow continues, now trumpets joining in the trombone chords and saxes under the trumpet melody. The trumpet is then left floating just over bass, drums, and soft guitar for a few measures until the horns make a swell into a guitar solo with clear melody lines and subtle chord and arpeggio figures. A sax and trumpet join the guitar line, and the band builds up with sections to a soaring trumpet melody line on top and to some big staccato hits for a climax. The trumpet continues over the rhythm section for a bit until horns swell in together on final rising lines with the trumpet over bass pulses. This is really rich arranging here, and this must have sounded really great and impressive in person because the crowd sounds really pleased uh, at mm -hmm. the end of this tune. Track six, Bounce the New Funk. 
That's <laughs> new as an NU. Uh, this one's got a super cool intro of sax lines working against brass syncopated lines and short blasts. They come together for a few measures of undulating lines as the drums come in on hi-hat and then kick into a funky groove with a final brass blast. There's a tasty syncopated rhythm guitar over the funky bass and drum groove. And then the trombones have syncopated lines to introduce some slinky grooving sax lines. They're trumpet blasts for punctuation. And then they all join in together on a final synced line. It goes on for another section with more sax lines and brass blips. And then the beat changes up with more of a backbeat pressing forward as the horn lines weave in different sections. There's a break for just the trumpets and then the saxes to have a line building back into the original funky groove and the whole band working up to a guitar solo with bluesy bends and interesting rhythmic licks before doing some more harmonic exploration over just the bass and drums. Throw in some cool double stops, triplet ideas too for a fun and free sounding guitar solo. He plays on and on and the crowd really likes it. Now we get the electronic valve instrument here <laughs> from Diversa and he's playing some really cool harmonic ideas uh, I mean over the chords harmonically adventurous with funky phrasing. This is uh, instrument is really interesting in that it sounds synthy but also has a rather brass type articulation to it and i like how the timbre changes up in different registers and especially the crazy quality of the high notes here hmm. the bones have some funky syncopated backing lines behind him and then the saxes and trumpets join in too after the big climax the groove gets bouncier with one note bass and simple guitar over the drums. The trumpets get a solo sectional part of syncopated lines and then get an exchange with trombones that builds into a full band arrangement with the saxes swooping in. We get back to the section we heard earlier with the full band grooving hard and a final section with some fast exchanges of horn section lines. Then a throbbing bass lead up to some final hits and a big last chord. The crowd cheers and Diversa introduces the band once again to applause. Now we're on to the bonus track called Internal. Now we've got different personnel here. Woodwinds, Jeff Driscoll, Catisse Buckingham, Tom Peterson, Vince Trombetta, again, Jr., that is, and Jennifer Hall. Trumpets, Wayne Bergeron, Glenda Smith, Ron King, Marissa Benedict. Trombones, Alex Eas, Bill Booth, Alan Ferber, George Thatcher and the rhythm section, Justin Morrell again on guitar, David Enos on bass, and John Guerin on drums. This has been a really good sounding live recording up until now, but the sound mm. recording quality is noticeably uh, worse. It's on noticeably this one. worse here. Yeah, so I'm not just different. <laughs> with different personnel, maybe this is a different night and obviously different equipment. Actually, it doesn't sound like it's. It's got a mic set up. It sounds like somebody recorded it, sounds it from like a small the audience, maybe. personal recorder, and maybe that's all they had on that night. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Anyway, that doesn't matter, really, because the music it's is great very, playing, though, still, very yeah. interesting here. Yeah, It begins with a rhythmic ostinato figure in the bass, and it's in a 7-4 meter. It goes on for four bars and then four more with cymbals added to it. It's a very happy-sounding melody comes on top of that with flute and harmon muted trumpet. And then flute and clarinet lines build around with lower syncopated trombone figures and some breaks in the ostinato. It's a very nice woodwind arranging here, quite unique. The bass gets going again with the figure in a lower octave. And then there's a trumpet solo with a teasing two-note entrance. And then quite a long wait for some 
longer note phrases. He takes his time to build up ideas with lots of space to create anticipation. It's playful and fun with rhythmic figures, fast flits, and half-valve ideas. There's some soft backing lines of woodwinds and trombones. Things change up and get a little bluesy with a new rising bass line and choppy syncopated band backing. The band works into thick arrangement after the trumpet solo with rising sax lines that then fall to a return to the original ostinato figure and some choppy and cute flute and clarinet lines. The band builds back up with drums kicking it up more with fills and hits. There's a cool little calypso sounding line on sax and guitar in there too. <laughs> Just there for a brief moment. They get back to the bluesy groove with more trumpet soloing for a bit and the horns work up some repeated rising lines following the bass into some final blasts. It's a really unique and fun tune in a very tricky meter to play in. So it's an extremely energetic and thrilling live big band recording. It makes me wish I had been there to see it, or better yet, playing in the band. I've played in a lot of uh, big bands with some exciting charts, but that, especially that first chart, that would just be a killer to play and, and get the audience <laughs> effect on it. That's just really right. screaming. Uh, the arranging is excellent using all the horns to great effect. We get flute, bass, clarinet. Uh, the compositions kept me interested in the structure and the different sections of songs with a lot of variety within each number uh, to pick out things that are happening on repeated listens. The solos are intense and charged up. Trombone, several saxes with different characters to them and the guitar solos, and of course, the verses, trumpet, and the electronic valve instrument. Uh, he takes a lot of chances in his solos, which I like. He kind of presents little problems to himself that he needs to resolve and then tie ideas together. So I like that adventurous nature of the trumpet solos. And also they have a lot of stylistic variety. Uh, some things are a little bit more boppy oriented, and then other things are more modal and modern sounding. Uh, so it's a really exciting live recording, a really good big band music here and thrilling soloists as well. Yeah, you said exciting. I said smoking hot swing, <laughs> this album. Yeah. Um, there's some really hot virtuosic soloing throughout the album, really. It's really an album made to thrill the audience, and the live recording shows that the audience was impressed. It's a really good recording, too, except for track seven, as you yeah. mentioned, which sounds very different. It's very clear in tracks one through six with audience and voices way in the back, which is good because you're just yeah. you're focusing on the uh, on the band. There are a few slower tunes for contrast, like Moments of Reality, but overall, it's a hot album and uh, one that'll really, it'll perk you up, I got to say. Yeah. That was, yeah, I was like, whoa. <laughs> Wide Awake throughout this record is really good. Yeah, really exciting. And uh, I haven't heard all of Diverse's earlier albums. Uh, I heard the Beatles one. And, I heard that uh, one, yeah. One of the other ones. So I'll have to go check out some more of his uh, earlier recordings. Wouldn't mind hearing that volume one of this one. Yeah, the, uh, from 20 years ago. I think Catalina's. Yeah. Look, that, look for that one. Check that out as well. Hmm. Well, there you have it. That's a six pack of trumpets uh, there. Three classical and three trumpet and big band recordings. Yeah, and that's our uh, 100th episode. There it is. 100th episode. So that's 600 albums under our belts. So what do you think, Russ? Are you ready for the next 600? I guess I'm ready. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Got, got a few hundred <laughs> on my to listen list already. So Yeah, and, I can't uh, even imagine slowing down now. What is this nonsense? Things are lining up. <laughs> we can actually kind of tell you what's uh, going to be coming up next week, at least in jazz. I've got uh, organ trio, guitar and organ. 
And you've got... Uh, I'm putting on my monk's hood and going for yeah, a lot of religious music next week. Religious music. I've also got an album of contemporary guitar, solo guitar works that might uh, make some people's... Uh, <laughs> might push some brains into new territories. <laughs> we'll have to see. Some 20th century works. Check anyway. that out. We're going to have some religious experiences. Uh, yes, we are. And some, Every week uh, on this show is a religious experience <laughs> yeah, as far really. as I'm concerned. And some organ. We're going to hear our... Our new friend uh, Brian Hose recording mm. with Mimi Fox. That's exciting. Ed yeah. Cherry's new album. And we've had for a while the advanced promotional release of Dave Stryker's new organ right. trio recording. So that's going to come out on the 3rd. And uh, we'll be talking about it uh, soon after that. The week after that, I'm going to do some piano. But uh, anyway, if you want to check out these uh, recordings, in advance, be sure to check out the Deezer playlist, which will be up shortly after this episode gets published. And you can find that on Deezer. Also, I'll put a link to it on Facebook. And you know you want to come over and join the Adult Music Facebook page so you can find out things, you know, as they happen. Get new album releases. A lot of the releases, you know, that I put up this week, when I put the YouTube link in, I was the first viewer on the release. Mm -hmm. Because oh, wow. that's the kind of guy I am. I get up at 4.30 in the morning to check out the new releases. And, uh, right. So, yeah. I should just start putting comments like those annoying people do first, you know, <laughs> like that with adult music. <laughs> yeah, I gotta. I should have put up something about Fabio Brum. If I find something about him, I will, because uh, I was hmm. pretty fascinated by his um, ability to play all of these different yeah, kinds of brass instruments. instruments. Yeah, let's see, see yeah. if I'll find some kind see of documentary about him. him. And there you go. That's uh, 100 episodes, and we're going to uh, do something special in two weeks for our two-year anniversary. We'll be doing uh, one live from the mountain lair. Uh, it's just one nonstop party here at Adult Music, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Yeah, we're going to go having a little <laughs> Italian feast uh, this week. Uh, yeah, that's to well. celebrate the hundredth episodes, and then yeah. we got uh, the second anniversary at the uh, at the mountain lair. So we got kind of snowed out this week and had to change our plans because yeah. things got unusually cold and snowy. It's but, snowy uh, here. It rarely snows yeah. here in this part of Japan where we are, but uh, did this week. So did this week. It's almost melted now, though. Thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Remember, when we sign off here, those promotions for the other recommended music podcasts will follow. So stick around, listen to those, and you can find the links to them at the end of the episode description. Any final words, Mike? Just uh, thanks for listening for 100 episodes, and here's to the next 100. Yeah, here's to 100 more. Get started with... 101 next week so stay listening and we'll see you again next time gerald albright maria schneider charlie hunter Duke robillard sean jones walter beasley steve swallow something came from baltimore is a jazz blues and r&b podcast and radio show and it's not really about baltimore subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. 
Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.